Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Ghost Army Podcast, the community-based podcast uh, set in Australia. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't already found... Uh, if you're listening to this, you probably have found the boltaction.net website. Um, there you can find four to five, usually five, good quality Bolt Action articles every week. Uh, there's a forum there, so if you have questions or would like to post your own things, you could go there. Um, and we are also on Facebook. You can find us under, strangely enough, boltaction.net. Uh, and there you can comment, see what the guys are up to comment and or post questions uh queries you may have about the show or things we've talked about i know that there was a lot of talk about um last episode's monte casino content and we'll get to that uh after our first break today but before we go any further i think it's important that we welcome back to australian soil the one the only rocket man Anthony, welcome home, brother. How you doing? Thank you very much. It's uh, kind of good to be back. <laughs> kind of I do good miss to be Canada back. already. Yeah? What do you miss most about Canada? Uh, I'm sick of this heat for one thing. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I don't think it's... Uh, yeah. I don't miss the <laughs> cold. I'm from Boston. <laughs> Forget about yeah. it. Uh, it is, it's what you're used to that's when right. you grow up. That is true. Well, speaking of um, great Odin's beard, we don't have Odin's beard. We have something even better. And that something better would be the man, the myth, the legend, the man attached to the beard. Patch, what is going on? Hello, Brad. <laughs> I love that. The straight. Hi, Brad. <laughs> hey, such a good yeah. yeah. Not much with Anth. It's, it's bloody hot. Yeah. It's, it's hot. And um, uncomfortable and sticky and yucky and a typical East Coast Australian summer, really. Yeah. Hot and sticky. I was just on uh, another podcast. Um, a friend of ours, a friend of the show, a guy named Christian Blatt, does a show called The Blattcast, um, which you can find on iTunes. Um, it's sort of an entertainment Hollywood podcast. And I will be on an episode in early um, February. And it is... Um, they were talking about how cold it was, even though they're in sunny California, how they all got dressed up to go out for, you know, Christmas celebrations. And I was like, yeah, I, I was wearing a singlet and shorts and, uh, yeah, I'm sweating a lot. I turn on the air conditioning. I'm wearing, uh, you know, thongs. And when I say thongs, I mean the Australian thongs, not the American thong, the thong, thong, thong. Yeah. You mean your <laughs> flip flops. Yeah, my flip flops. That's right. <laughs> so Anthony, so you've gone from I'm assuming you've gone back to flip flops. You're still not wearing your snow boots? No, I get to wear steel cap boots for work, so Oh, there's gotta be sweaty in this weather, man. Yeah, not a lot of breathing going on there. Ooh. Yeah, hey, I gotta put a suit on during the day. You know how ridiculous it is in the middle of summer, in Australian summer, how archaic it is to put a suit jacket on? Yeah. It is completely and utterly insane. People are sweating around you just in a pair of shorts and you're walking around in a full suit and Yeah, it's... but that's because they've got drugs hidden where you don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, well that's true as well. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, you know, if 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 you yeah, were some talking reason, people sweat when I get near them, I just don't get it. But... Yeah, I was gonna say if you were gonna talk to Chuck Norris's beard attached to one of the most proficient uh, you know, police officers known to man then I would, you know, if you're in, if you're causing trouble and then that rocks up, you'd be sweating too. Yeah, good point. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh. 
yeah, yeah. All good. All good. <laughs> all right, gents. Let's uh, let's get uh, into the nitty gritty. Let's talk bolt action, shall we? Uh, yes. Patch. I couldn't help but notice on the social media pictures of some incredibly painted tanks. Talk us yeah. through that because my mind was blown. Please. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, man. I've um, I picked up a Ferdinand um, from uh, the brand new JTFM distributor here in Australia, nice. and uh, is it Campaign Books up in up in Queensland? Barnaby mm-hmm. Jones off the page and. Really amazing stuff, and we'll have to uh, have a bit of a chat to him and and see what he's got. It might be a good good option for later on. And um, yeah, so I picked up a Ferdinand, and I, and I got a Warlord uh, Tiger One with a Zimmerman. You know, Whitman's Whitman Tiger. Yeah. They, yeah, I got that on a bit of a swapsy with a mate, and I gave him a painted Tiger, and and I got this one because I wanted to try something new. Yeah. And tell us what you did, because I wouldn't yeah. have thought to do that, and it worked really well. Oh, look, very, very quickly, um, I just used, like, a, a standard primer, army painter primer, mm-hmm. um, spray paint, a Dunkel Girl coloring, followed by a bit of an overspray of bone, just lightly, just to make it a little bit not so yellow. Mm-hmm. If, if you know the, the plastic soldier, Dunkel Girl, it's really yellow. It is very um, yellow, yeah. So, yeah, it took a bit of a hit off that. Um, painted the tracks and the the other metallic bits, and then I um I put an oil wash over it, and it's using a brown umber oil wash mixed with some solvent, very thinned down. And what it does is it just uh, really uh, softens the colour and uh, creates a bit of variation because you then go go with a an earbud dipped in a bit of solvent and you clean all that up right so it's just really the edges and the recesses that have that coloring but it slightly changes the main coloring of the tank mm-hmm. um, so it's not so in your face bright and so then it's, I've been used- it's a hold on is it a little bit then like by the way an earbud for our north american listeners is a q-tip uh, i'm sure mm. most of you got that the um so it's a little bit like an like a like a, a an applied wash is that what you yeah think? it's just it's just using a like a very I just use a cheap oil paint and uh, and it's just you put it on your palette for example just a small amount and then you get a bit of solvent on a brush and you just water it water it down till it's a very low you know very um uh, a weak oil paint wash so you just make the wash yourself and put it on the tank and it, it takes forever to dry right so you, what you do is you can easily clean it up with solvent then you just go through and you clean it up so you're happy with where it is and um you can almost completely wipe it off but there is it just leaves that slight residue which which changes the color which is what you want when you've got that really bright dunkel girl type yeah. coloring um then i allow that to dry put a varnish over it this is all taken all of about 10 minutes by now to do all those steps really yeah. quick. Um, I then got the um, camo. Like I got, I wanted to put a camo on these because, you know, the Whitman's Tiger was a late war tank. And, and when oh, yeah. did the Zimmermit come in on the Tigers? Uh, I think Zimmermit was between sometime in 43 and 44. They stopped so, actually putting it back on by the end of 44. Yeah, so by that stage, you know, most of the Tiger ones would have had some form of camouflage. Um, so I didn't want to just leave it blank. And I got uh, some the the various colours that I used. And uh, it's only the two. It was like a dark green and a, and a rot brown, uh, brownish type reddish paint. Mm-hmm. And I used the, um, what do you call it, the foam or whatever from Blister Pack. Yeah. 
the sponge, just tore it up, you know, till it's uh, till it had a nice sort of edge on it, and I just dipped it in the paint and just applied it gently onto the tank in in, in lines. And the effect it gives is like the you know the camo has been sprayed on and it's gradually worn off. That's good. so it's not. Yeah, it creates a bit of a a worn already sort of weathered type camouflage mm-hmm. pattern. Um, and you've got a pretty good control using that sponge. And then I use, using the AK Interactive products, I've put a dark brown wash all over everything mm-hmm. and then cleaned it up with the earbuds. Nice. Then, yeah, I mean, this is really quick steps, right? And, it's, and you create all this variation in color just by how, however much of the, the wash, because it's an enamel wash with AK, however much you clean up, depends on what the final product looks like. So if you want an area really clean, you, you use a lot of solvent and you, and you clean it up. If you want it to look a little bit dirty or a little bit darker, you don't quite clean it up as much. Um, and you leave, of course, the recesses and, and a little bit of area around raised edges. And then I just went through and did a, a bone color, like, you know, the off-white bone, mm-hmm. um, like dry brush. That's it. Nice. It's it funny because when you, you and Brian talk about it, it always sounds like it takes you hours and hours, but yeah, you're going through these steps, and I'm like, all right, that sounds like a lot, but mm. yeah, but no, it, you actually, actually you take pictures as you go, and you put it up, and we see it um, on our little private, you know, nerd bolt action <laughs> yeah. thread that we have running, and yeah, you do it in like five minutes. Mm. It's super easy. And the final step I generally do is um, before applying a decal is just a little bit chipping. And I don't know if you've seen it. The scale modelers love it. And uh, mm. it's just really using that, that sponge and using an edge of a sponge from a blister pack and dipping it into a bit of dark gray. Or I used a panzer gray. Okay. And you put it little bits of it, um, like you, you take off most of the paint. So when you put the paint, put the sponge onto a flat surface, for example, you'd get dots. You wouldn't just get a single pattern. You know, right. get dots, right? And you put it around uh, hatches around the edges, and what it simulates is paint chipping off. Yeah. So yeah, and it's really a simple step, and it just creates that little bit of variances. And so when you're looking at the model, you know, from all the way at, on a table, you can't see it too much. It's just color variances. But when you get a bit closer, you can see that the color's broken up, and it actually genuinely looks like it's been worn, and it's a, a tank that is. You know, perhaps seen a few battles or gone through a few trees and mm. and the, the paint started to chip off. Now, so. I actually have a question about your sponging. Now, when you're sponging, mm. you are you have, what, a puddle of paint or you'll put down some paint. If you're using like a Vallejo, you'll squeeze some out. Now, yeah. when you apply it to – when you get it on the sponge, do you sort of wipe some off or mm. do a few test presses or do you press it fresh from the paint directly on no, the tank? I'm- if if you do if you have too much paint on it, it's just going to come off as a single big blob. Yeah, that's what I was so, thinking. So yeah, how would so you go I do about is, doing that? Yeah, put it on the put the paint on the sponge, and then I use the palette. Um, like as a palette, I just use those plastic pl- you know uh, camping plates. Yeah, and I just keep pressing it. I might press it five or six times till I'm satisfied the consistency of the dots, mm-hmm. and then I'll put it onto the tank. So you don't uh. want you don't want blobs. You just want very light. Uh, areas and you can you in order to build it up, you want several applications r- uh, rather okay. than just you know if you want a light area, you just you know put it on once if you want a, a really harsh edge, you put it on a couple of times, but always when it 's only small amounts on the sponge 
And even when you were putting the the tiger stripe, so to speak, on the tiger you're talking about, um, were was that multiple applications of dried out paint, or was that sort of one heavier coat? Uh, that generally was a bit heavier on the paint because what I wanted with the camouflage lines was a lot more consistent, like um, mm. uh, a lot more consistent application of the paint. But as I get towards the end of it, you can start to see. If you get a chance to have a look at the photo, you can start to see where it creates gaps, mm-hmm. and it and it looks like that that the the, the the camouflage has chipped off and the dunkel gelb has started to come through. Yeah. That's where you start. What's what I'm saying about you have less paint on there. It creates, you know, a gaps within the the application of the sponge, mm-hmm. and it creates yeah, it creates that effect. Which um, that's sort of about where you want to get it when you when you're applying the chipping. Alternatively, you can use a very very small brush. And um, and just apply that, say a Panzer Grey, for example, around the, the hatches and around the exposed edge paneling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find I'm being a for whatever reason I can't be random enough <laughs> yeah. with my paintbrush, and that a sponge creates those random patterns, which you just would go insane trying to do it with it's, a paintbrush. It, doing things randomly is harder than it looks. At least for me, I spend a lot of time. My, I think my brain just automatically fixes it. I'm just a little too meticulous. Uh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, that. Yeah. I think we should include pictures of that tiger in your show or in the show notes, um, and yeah, make okay. it sort of the uh, the picture for the episode. Because I mean, as you're going through the process, it makes sense because I've seen the picture. So we'll mm, do that for yeah. our listeners. All right. And if anyone's got any questions about it, what I'd like to think about this particular method that I do, Brad, and mm-hmm. um, I don't pretend to be an amazing painter or anything like that. I'm just a too bad like you I'm, are. No, well, I, I consider myself to be a war gamer first, you know, and I paint so I can put these things on a table. I don't paint them so they can sit on a shelf and yeah. be looked at. Um, so I've developed these techniques which are, are very quick but I think effective yeah. and that anyone can easily learn. Like it's not some magic that the scale modelers amongst us, you know, or the scale modelers hold and they hold it tight and you have to be a, a modeler for 30 years to learn it. It's so simple and they're so easy to do and there's so many products out there to help you that anyone who, say, for example, they want to play bold action, they've never really painted before, they can learn this in a really quick manner in a couple of attempts, a very easy step-by-step, and they can have really effective-looking tanks on a table with... um, you know, without having to go through that years and years of practice. Exactly, and I think it's important to note that... um, one of the reasons, I mean, I've I've known you now for a couple of years, and your stuff was hardly, you know, not good to start with. But I mean, the the quality of your painting has gone through the roof. Um, I mean, it's just gotten better and better and better. And that comes down to your attitude of having a go. Like you just you try it. You're fearless with it. Um, and I know that I sometimes get paranoid. Like, oh, I spent forty dollars on this tank, or in the case of that thin three D printed thing, like I've spent seventy five dollars yeah. on this tank. Yeah, God, I'm afraid to put a paintbrush anywhere near that thing. Um, I probably suffer from. I probably suffer, Brad, from a, a complete unemotional attachment to my models. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if that makes sense, but uh, I yeah, I, I have the opposite I really, though. <laughs> I'm like, oh my I little really pretties. Yeah. try things out and I'm always of the opinion that if it doesn't work, it doesn't work I'll strip the paint or I'll spray over it and I'll start again um, yeah. so using things like the first time ever I used that sponge technique on this tiger, I had no idea how it was going to turn out but it's just worth having a crack yeah. like it, it's, not, it's not the end of the world if things don't work, like I've had plenty of things not work on me and I, I've looked at it and gone, 
Yeah, yeah, not sure what I was doing there, but um, <laughs> let's yeah. start again. And so I'll, I'll just go and spray over what I've done and then start again. And it's it's just about giving yourself a go. I've, I've, I've known a few people and I've seen a few people within our hobby which they – they paint at a certain standard, and that's perfectly great. They're happy with that. Mm-hmm. But they do the same thing every time. Not looking at anyone in particular. <coughs> not, me. Not, not, no, <clears> but me. Like, <throat> it's exactly like when they pick up a new army, it's not, you know what I'm going to do with this army? I'm going to do something different. Yeah. It's I'm going to paint this army exactly the same as I painted the last army, <laughs> yeah. just with a different color. And therefore, you, you don't expand um, and get a lot better by doing the same thing again and again. You just become very good at doing that one particular thing. Yeah, we were talking about that last night because I'm guilty of that. And I I will literally buy armies specifically because I know that the way I paint works for that. Um, mm. For example, I've, I seem to be painting a lot of desert things recently. Um, <laughs> you love light colors, right? I, I love the light colors. I love yeah. the way... Um, I have a way of painting desert tanks that I've been playing with, but um, as I was telling you last night, I, it's just an extrapolation on something I already know. I'm not actually, you know, stretching the boundaries. I'm not using these oils. I'm not using thinners. I'm I'm using applied dry brushes and yeah. you know edge highlighting, and I really like the effect that I'm getting from it. But I feel like you know I'm not getting dirty enough desert vehicles, for example. So I really need yeah. to take a page out of your book and really just have a have a crack. You know. Well, you saw that that Panzer three I did in the desert camo, right? Yeah. Or in the desert thing, which was it was um, sensational. Yeah. Well, well, I've not done the desert vehicle for the the DAC before, and I just wanted. I had a Panzer three, and um, I have a tendency to pick up vehicles I really like, but I don't have armies to actually field them. Mm. <laughs> so, so I experiment with them. I go, well, I've got a Panzer three command. I think it's like a K model or something. But um, I thought, I'll give it a go. And I, I did this technique where I, I used the bit of a Dunkel Gelb and, and using Brian as some inspiration um, with that amazing Panther he did. I wanted to give it a go. So I used a lot of heavy oils and it was so quick and easy. And then I painted the, the, the DAC. Um, symbol on the on the back that looks on the half so section of the tank for something different, but it's just you know it, it's it's experimenting and going well what what could work I don't know I'm going to try because I, I might try a, a a brown thinned out oil wash to change the color and then I'm going to really do a heavy bone edging or, or or dry brushing and that should bring that up and then I'm going to mm-hmm. use a bit of the the rust. Uh, color to to try and bring out it's just really experimenting and it's hit and miss but exactly if if you're you're learning a new technique every time you're doing it and and you're kind of learning what's worked and and i highly encourage people just to go get out of your comfort zone if you want to improve as a painter get out of your comfort zone and try and try new things um it's just worth it and there's plenty of guys i mean if anyone wants to know for example how to paint that in more detail then I'm more than happy to show you or you know message me or get me on the Facebook page and I'll, I'll step you through it because it is a, a very easy process and um, and and very quick to get an effective looking vehicle on a bolt action table definitely well, that, well that's a good point about just being open to trying new things because you've only been what painting war gaming models for about two and a half years patch that's it yeah yeah first it's paintbrush I picked up yeah oh. Mm. <laughs> but, I've, but in that time, and yeah. if I will say, in that time, I, I don't do things by halves. Um, I tend to to commit to a certain project, and, I'll, and I don't want to make this podcast all about me. But in that time, I'll, I'll tell you what I've painted. 
um, a British army, a British desert army, my first army I painted, then a, uh, a Red Devil British paratrooper, nice. then I painted a US Marines, um, then I painted an SS force for a mate, then I painted French early war German Blitzkrieg. How many French models did you paint, though? I think that's at uh, least two armies worth. About a hundred. Yeah, exactly. uh, a, a Blitzkrieg German army, the late war German army, a late war French based on US army. I've also done your commission for the DAC and I've painted another SS force um, and probably about 40 or 50 vehicles. So I think I, I've made up a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, but like you said, like it's not a 20-year thing learning these ancient arts of how to do no, stuff. It's you just not need magical. to get out there and do it. And, and there's plenty of us out there who are willing to say we've tried these steps. Here's an easy way to go about it. Just give yeah. it a crack. Um, I mean, not everyone wants to have that type of effort in their painting and they like to play. But if you want to, if you want to learn new things, and I'm constantly learning more and getting better, my aim is to to be able to put out a vehicle like Brian did with that Panther. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I did an article on how to paint gators like I did a couple of years ago on the uh, on a different website, and I literally got like six people posting on there, you paint gators like that? Doesn't that take forever? What's wrong with you? And that's pretty much my approach to painting. People yes. have been saying that to me for years. So, Speaking yeah. of which, your German's actually finished yet? Shut up. <laughs> Um, actually that patch and I were also talking about that the other day. Um, yeah, my, I have, I have a multi, I have multiple armies worth of Germans army lists worth. I should say, um, I have something like 50 infantry men done a fully painted Nebelwerfer, two mortars, two ATRs, um, some command models and a couple of mostly painted tanks. Um, and one, fully painted Horch and one fully painted Stug 33B. Um, and then I have a whole bunch of half-painted stuff. So, sure, I have a fully painted German army, but would I take it to an event? No. So, it doesn't count in my mind. One of these days, I'll... Yeah, I'll, I'll get there. Thank you for bringing up my mo- my shame, Anthony. <laughs> so, Anthony, let's uh, let's change gears quickly. What have you been up to, man? Because I know that speaking of new things, you have been up to something new and very exciting. He's very yeah. Hungry. Well, <laughs> I um pretty much hit the ground running when I got back to Australia. I've only been back for two weeks, and I started off with assembling three squads of uh, SS Cav, which I converted up. Okay, how how did you make those? Because I was going to say, no one makes SS Cav. Uh, actually, Crusader does, or they make German cavalry. Right. Um, but I converted up most of mine with um, Wargames Factory Germans and Wargame Factory Spanish Civil War cavalry. Nice. And those, did the scale, I mean, it's the same company, so theoretically the scale should work. But yep, when you're talking work. different time periods, sometimes they don't. It all married together nicely? Yeah, no, they, I'll probably put an article up soon. But yeah. yeah, so they went together pretty well. I've made a, I forget how it's pronounced, it's a Begliet squad, which are coming out in the new Ostfront book. Oh, the tank riders. Yeah, the old German tank riders that were attached to the Stugs to protect them against uh, Soviet infantry. That's very exciting. And I'm not sure if they were entirely equipped, but they had a lot of assault rifles. Yeah, I was just thinking, did yeah they were they had to be some sort of assault weapon. I was thinking they were SMGs, but now that you mention it, yeah, they would be assault rifles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think German tank riders with assault rifles. 
Nice, but that none of that is the stuff that I was expecting you to say. There's something else you've been working on. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm still getting there. So I've been assembling <laughs> a lot of Germans. I've been painting my Cancot army, which is also German. I needed to paint up a few extra things for that. And I've also just started doing my Hungarian infantry finally, trying to catch up with Brian. Now that's the infantry to go with the giant motor pool of tanks that you already have. Yep, correct. So me and Brian have been going pretty Hungarian crazy the last couple of weeks. Back and forth, a lot of chatting about different uh, things for the Hungarians, now, special I know, units. I know a lot of people have been talking about what models to use as infantry to go with those fantastic Kickstarter models. Now, I know Brian's gone a certain route with late war Germans and a variety of models from different places. You've gone somewhere completely different. Um, I know that people want to hear about this. What, how, how have you been doing it? What have you been doing? Yeah, well, this was actually suggested by Brian, but um, I'm actually just using the plastic Blitzkrieg uh, warlord kits and it's surprisingly painted up just in the hungarian colors so khaki and stuff like that they look like completely different models that's cool yeah they do i was like because you you painted them brown and i actually i asked you where did those come from and you're like they're the blitzkrieg germans I was like, what i have those guys they don't look like that and i actually pulled out the sprue sure enough if you paint them brown they look completely different yeah, so uh, the Hungarians had a lot of side caps, so I'm using a lot of side the side caps on my guys to make them a bit different. I haven't gone Brian's route and uh, green stuffed mustaches. I'm just painting them on instead. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no one goes as as hard as Brian on that. Yeah, really? it's not yeah. <laughs> not that dedicated. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually my infantry are motorized infantry, so. The Hungarian motorized infantry ended up getting a lot of the tanker uniforms, which the tanker uniforms for the Hungarians were like these sick leather jackets. Nice. So, yeah, there's a lot of pictures of motorized infantry sitting around in their leather jackets looking like the Fonz. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, that combined with all these mustaches, they're quite uh, unique tr- looking troops. Yeah, I was going to say, are they the village people? or they? Yeah, they have a very distinctive look. It's, it's, it's very <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I've even found a few pictures of them wearing sunglasses as well. Yeah, so, I just imagine those guys wearing aviators with their, you know, uh, the tanker helmets and those leather tanker yeah. caps. And, yeah, that's a good jackets. look. They can go out on the town like that. Yep. So, yeah, I've been painting up a bunch of them. Um, that's probably going to be my army for the February event that you're TOing. I'm so glad you brought that up. We'll talk more about that event in just a minute. Uh, actually, you know what? We'll, let's do it now. Um, in February, on February 8th, we are going to have our second one-day bolt-action event. Um, it is sponsored by War and Peace Games, Warlord Games, um, Blitzkrieg Miniatures has a box in the mail of awesome prizes, and we have a new sponsor, uh, Laser Touch, who, if you've been following us on Facebook um, and you've seen it, the article on BoltAction.net, do the Laser Cut Custom Country or podcast, depending on uh, if you want an LRDG or a um, Ghost Army podcast set of pin markers or objective markers. Uh, in the game that I was playing this afternoon, for example, I was using LRDG objectives and LRDG pin markers. So they just had the uh, the Scorpion logo on them. I got to say, I'm a huge fan of that um, because I've been using, you know, I started out with little skull beads and then I went to little red rocks and, 
you know, you don't pick those up accidentally. I, I like having little tiles. I'm pretty keen to get my hands on some. I normally just use red dice, and that can get yeah. quite confusing. Yeah, I'm yeah. the kind of guy who will pick them up. And I am sorry, guys. Um, I am talking to Patch and Anthony here. Uh, years are coming. Um, they just got a little. <sighs> they got a little backordered because I had to get the uh, spooky custom made. So the Ghost Beautiful. Army podcast ones uh, should be on their way to you, Patch and Anthony. I'm actually holding yours, so um, I will get them to you shortly. No problems. So anyway, Just, the uh, sorry the the February event. Um, we've actually changed venues. I actually had somebody asking me if it was the same venue today. Um, if you are in Melbourne and you do want to come to this, it is it's at a place called the Games Laboratory um, or Laboratory, however you want to say it, in Melbourne's uh, city. It's in the city. It's not out in the middle of you know down by the beach where Hampton is. Not that that's in the middle of nowhere, but it's about a thirty minute train ride. Now this is smack dab in the middle of the city. Um, we have the entire upper floor. Uh, at this point, guys, we're looking like we may be at 20, maybe more players. Um, I, thankfully, we have fantastic prize support. It looks like everyone's going to go home with something pretty special no matter what. Um, but, yeah, it's it's going to be great. Um, cannot wait. We have people flying in from Sydney. I think we have someone flying in from Canberra. Uh, it's going to be really cool. Um, it is the Sunday, not the Saturday. And that's February 8th. Um, we will be using rules as written. Um, and we will be running missions. Look, just look at the player pack. It's on boltaction.net. If you have a question, please contact me through our Facebook page. Sorry. Go ahead, Am. I'm super keen to get the Hungarians on the table for that. I'm super keen to get you here and playing some of the new, like, the new Melbourne players. We had a whole bunch of people come out of the woodwork in December to play in the December event that we'd never seen. Um, and those guys are now bringing their friends. So we have just, I, I've been playing friendly games against a number of the players from the December event. And man, there's, they, whoo, they're good. Um, I played a game against Garrett today, and oh, it, it went bolt action happened. Um, but he definitely knew what he was doing with his Germans, and uh, I am looking forward to a rematch hopefully in February. Yeah, good stuff. Well, no offense to the Canberra and Sydney people, but I'm very happy that there's only a three hour drive for some games for me in the future, not yeah. nine hours. Yeah, what are you going to do with the rest of your time? Sleep? Oh, uh, yeah. I guess I better paint my Germans. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. say. We're so used to, and, and for those that, that don't know, the very first time I met you was at Moab a couple of years ago, and I'm, I'm standing there getting tables ready or something. I was one of the first there, and you were either there or, or eat, I think you were eating some breakfast or something, and it's like, hey, man, how you going? I'm Patch. And, and you're just sort of saying, oh, yeah, I, I just spent all night driving here. All yeah, night. I left at midnight to get there that morning. Yeah, mm. and you were about to play like eight hours of bolt action. After a nine-hour drive, that was fun. It was insane. You you became my hero almost immediately. Yeah, so it was a long drive, but that actually brings me back to another project I'm about to start soon. I've just ordered some parts, but the it's not even in the army list. But the Hungarians had motorcycle troops, a bit like the Germans did at the start of the war. Yeah. In now, what did they have that made them different? Because these are cool. Well, they also had like the sidecar um, combinations build up, but instead of having a uh, MG thirty four like the Germans, they had some with uh, anti tank rifle on them. 
Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, they're so, so good. You've, so you've got a motorbike with a sidecar and then this massive anti-tank rifle hanging off the one side. So I'm pretty keen to model one of them up, even if it doesn't exist in the army list. I'm just zipping around with that ATR. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like that uh, famous... It's like the famous... Um, Vespa scooter they developed in the 50s for, I think it was the Italian um, mm. Air Force, or not Air Force, uh, Paratroop Corps, and it was like, it was a light anti-tank gun built into... It was into, a recoilless rifle, wasn't it? Yeah. Was it? Oh, so yeah. it's a howitzer built into a Vespa. It's amazing. I need to put pictures of that on uh, Facebook. By the time this episode <laughs> comes out, it will have appeared on Facebook. Too bad that's post-World War II, though. Yeah. No, well, you have to. So anyway, there, there is. So rules. what have you been up to, Brad? Oh, sorry. Sorry, what's that? I was, I was going to say, yeah, there is rules for it. You just make them up, and we'll play them because <laughs> it's just so cool. Yeah. Uh, it's like a. Uh, it's like the ATR version of the uh, German uh, MMG bike. Like the the precedence is there. Just change the gun. Well, pretty much the ATR and a MMG are exactly the same points on a vehicle as well. So. And on foot, too. So, yeah. They, oh, no. No, they're not. Never mind. Forget I said that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you were asking what I've been up to, and I'm changing the subject. Uh, yeah, man. I've been, uh, I've been doing a lot of things. I've been on school holidays. So other than catching up on my sleep and drinking a lot of good coffee and hanging out with friends, um, I've gotten quite a bit of hobby done. Um, yeah. we. Uh, let's see. I started out with the crazy idea that I was in a paint and army in a couple of days and then it took me a couple of days to assemble the army so i put that on the shelf um i built as we talked about last time an entire uh soviet naval army um the black death it's an awesome army i cannot wait to start painting it but i i just couldn't it just was taking too long and i wanted to turn and get onto my cancon army and get that done first so i started working on my fins so say the Soviet guys had some interesting anti-tank rifles too, didn't they? They could shoot around corners. They could sh- shoot in spirals. Um, yeah, because of course, because they come in a blister and they'd been shipped from the UK and then shipped, you know, all over the place. They'd one of the barrels had wrapped around the model. Uh, that's fine. It was just really funny when I opened the blister and held it up and went, "Yeah, that's that's not shooting anything." Because the ATR guy, rather than, you know, how most anti-tank rifles are laid out with a prone figure, um, this guy is actually holding it over his shoulder. And because of the way it's it's a really cool sculpt, but because of the way that it's sculpted, um, nine times out of ten, it's going to bend or break unless you pin it, but because it's so narrow. So I'm actually just going to rebuild it using plastic um, anti-tank rifles because I have a, a heap from plastic Russian Soviet troops, so not a problem. Um, yeah, but it was really, really interesting when that happens. Um, yeah, I was. I did a lot of head swaps, put a lot of helmets onto metal models that otherwise didn't need them, um, just so I could differentiate between naval squads. Spent a lot of time like really making the army schmig, and then went, yeah, no, I'm. I have to go work on my fins. So I pulled out my. Um, pulled out my brigade fins um, and when I say brigade um, brigade miniatures and went to work on that got them all assembled got them all base coated got them all washed started doing the detailing for the white and spent a few almost a week a few days almost a week you know lining in 
the white and then just realized there was no time that was happening. So I've switched again. Um, I played a friendly game against Dave Monroe, who's at the December tournament. Um, had an awesome time playing against him. But because I was still assembling the Finns at that point, um, I took the Sikhs because I'd never taken my Sikh army out. And um, I thought, you know, what the hey? And I had a really fun time doing it. Um, and I thought, you know what? This, this should be what I'm taking to CanCon. So I've spent um, the last week or so doing home improvement, not necessarily doing much hobby, but um, working on my Indian carriers and finishing a few other conversions for the army. Um, so that's what I've been doing. Tons of hobby and lots of games. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm really looking forward to the bolt action event at CanCon. I know we're up to 24 players. Um, Peter West has done a wonderful job, um, putting that together. He's been answering questions and it's just been, it's been really cool. And I'm really looking forward to taking my seeks to that. Um, although patch, I'm sorry. I had to take the Bofors out of my list. Mm. Yes. Well, you're a lesser man than. I thought <laughs> it's it's true. I am I am sadly a lesser man. I converted the <laughs> Bofors for my Finns, and then I oh, realized yeah. that there was no way I could actually match the basing because um, mm, Tobu, it, when he helped me paint the fi- uh, paint the Sikhs, airbrushed the bases, and I literally just I don't have an airbrush. Yeah, I, I think, bro, this brings me an interesting point. I don't want to take away too much from what you're talking about, what you're doing, but the Bofors reminds me of something that I was speaking to someone about. Mm. And it might have even been yourself last time, but about this toe issue for a Bofors. Oh, yeah. And, like, I know it's, you know, as far as controversy goes, it's probably hardly relevant for most people. But it, I, whilst researching, does a Bofors, being a heavy AA, need a toe? The question was posed to me, so I yes. thought about it. I had a look. In the toe section, it, it just sort of talks about heavy guns. Mm-hmm. And I go, okay, all right, heavy guns. Mm, maybe you could classify the Bofors as a heavy AA being a heavy gun. It, it sort of makes sense, right? And I'd go with that. But then I started to have a look at the vehicles, which can tow. And I, and I looked up, like, I think it might have been the 15 CWT truck, which is a British truck. Mm-hmm. And what can, what can it tow? And it goes across. It starts with AT guns. And it can tow a light and a medium AT gun. Fair enough. It can tow a light howitzer. So now I'm saying it can't tow a medium howitzer. So therefore, a, a medium AT is equivalent to a light AT, a light howitzer mm-hmm. in, in towing. It can then tow a light uh, AA gun and a heavy AA gun. Yeah. So now I'm looking across the board and saying, well, in all things considered, a heavy AA gun is effectively the same towing capacity or, or requires the vehicle of the towing capacity the same as it does for a light howitzer. Yep. So I go, well, you know, that would that would make sense. If something can tow a, uh, a light howitzer, then it can also tow a heavy AA gun. But then if, as we can see, and hopefully everyone's following my train of thought, yeah. you can push, if it's got wheels, you can push a light howitzer. And the both comes with wheels. And the Bofors comes with wheels, therefore you should be able to push the Bofors. For those wondering However, what we're talking about here, the Bofors is the heavy anti-aircraft gun from the British list. It's a 40-millimeter anti-aircraft gun. Go it's ahead. a heavy auto cannon. Sorry, what did I say? Yeah. I meant it. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's no, a yeah, heavy, heavy auto cannon. 
Which is not to be confused when they originally wrote the game. Some places in the book it says medium autocannon. I know there have been some questions mm-hmm. about that on Facebook recently. It is There is only a light and a non-light autocannon, yeah. and the non-light one has been FAQ'd to be a heavy. So, yes, go ahead, Patch. Yeah, but, but across the board, I find um, it's one real inconsistency is that vehicles can, for example, tow a – in one instance, they can tow a medium howitzer but not tow a medium – like, you know, there's yeah. some things that can tow a, a light howitzer but it can't tow something else. Or, for example, it can tow a light um, AT, a medium AT, and a light howitzer, but AA guns aren't listed. That's yeah. can tow. So – it, there's a bit of inconsistency in regards to um, the anti-aircraft and, and towing in general across the books. Yeah, there's also not all vehicles are made the same. Um, the Allied books, specifically the the British book and the U.S. book, have varied size trucks. Um, you can have sort of mm. mini trucks, whereas the Germans have one truck, and but they also yeah. have. Half tracks, um, but they also have field cars, which are sort of in between a truck and a Kuba wagon, which is a staff car. So, yeah, there's different sizes of things. And as you say, there's towing consistency differences. Now, if I was to get into the more historical side of things, I'm sure when they were writing things, they were taking into account the size of the engine, the size of the vehicle and what they actually towed in real life. Uh, and I'm sure that some countries had vehicles that had bigger engines and were better towers. Um, but yeah, just to go off of what you were saying, in the in the British book, all three sizes of their trucks, not the heavy ones, the 30 CWT trucks, and the 15 CWT trucks, all of them are able to tow a heavy, eight, heavy AA gun and a light howitzer and a lighter medium anti-tank gun. So, yeah. yeah, I think if you just had consistency across the board, I, I get historical accuracy, but when you've got, you know, you've got to set uh, a certain standard across the board in regards to your towing so that, you know, a, a light a light howitzer is equivalent to a heavy AA is equivalent to a medium AT gun. And if you keep that consistency throughout, even if it's not listed that, it, you know, it doesn't specifically say it can tow an AA gun, if it can tow a light howitzer, it can tow any AA do you see what I'm getting at? Like you I should have that consistent do. approach to all. All vehicles are not going to be the same, but all mobile items retain a consistency in what you know their weight distribution, if you like, or what you can and can't tow. Like yeah. you know, it's it's. I, I just think that it, we've missed that somewhere within the rules that there is that inconsistency, and um, it creates a bit of a funny situation when you're looking at. Um, some people taking the definition of a heavy AA to be a heavy gun, therefore the same as a heavy howitzer, mm-hmm. and you can't push it around. Therefore, yeah. you have to take a tow in a tournament list. Well, I've um, I while we've been talking, I've been flipping through the British book. Turns out everyone, just everything that can tow a light anti-tank gun, a light anti-aircraft gun, oh, sorry, they can tow what we were talking about, a light or medium um, sorry, a light howitzer, a lighter medium anti-tank gun, and a light howitzer, I'm just repeating myself, can take a light or heavy AA gun, except for the M3 white scout car. Um, interestingly, the scout car can only take the light 
anti-tank gun. I'm oh, sorry, light anti-aircraft gun. I'm going to stop talking now. Somebody else help me out. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right, because there's areas where like a Jeep, for example, can only tow a light anti-tank gun yes. or a light AA gun. And that's or cool. Right? Crad. Because, yeah. yeah they're, they're, they're tiny little vehicles and they don't have the, the torque or whatever in order to tow these big, the big guns. Um, but, you know, this is again harking back to one of our... Um, Maybe we haven't spoken about it on this podcast, but certainly the other ones where we just need some sort of uh, vehicle across, like all armies, which is just a cheap tow, or you can say a horse-drawn carriage, <laughs> which uh, everything can be towed because we're still having armies that can't, don't actually have a, a cheap tow, aren't we? Yeah, well, the Germans, for example. Mm. But yeah, then you can never take your tugboat jet patch. I know. I know, I need to take the tugboat out. But then it's 80 points. It's just hard to fit it into any freaking list. <laughs> True. Well, speaking of that, actually, um, I was about to get into my CanCon list. But before we do that, Amped, do you want to talk about yours? All right, sure. Because that uh, actually ties in because I've had to buy a half-track uh, to tow my one of my pieces. Yeah, so tell got... us what what little piece you're bringing, Anthony. I'm bringing a Flak 88. So you're leaving the rocket so behind good. this time for the world's biggest gun. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> what else are you putting in around the gun? So I need the um yeah, the seven half track to actually tow it, which is one of the two German vehicles that can tow it. It's only that or the tugboat, which sadly yeah. I don't have. So so tell us what the cost, before you go into anything else, what is the cost for the eighty eight and you have to include the transport? Okay, the 88 by itself is 185 points. Yikes. So I thought, why not spend another 10 points and get a spotter as well? So yeah, 195. Good That's for regular. And then the half track is another 44 points. Yeah. So 234 Th- points? 39. 334, 39. 239. Yeah. 239 points. My math is excellent. That's that, yeah. 239 points. Mm. Well, I well, got to say, man, having run, and I know you would know this, Sam, having run Tigers more often than I have, but I played, um, as we all know, I played a Tiger in a tournament last year, Tiger 1, and just having that 88 on the board is amazing. Its its range is so long that you're rarely firing at long range, so you're getting the full penetration. You're not getting the minus one to hit, and when that thing hits something, if it's uh, if it's a vehicle, it's going to make a hole. What's its armor pen on that? Plus seven. Seven. Yes, yeah, seven. So I mean, if you're even if you're hitting the biggest tanks, what do you need? A three, a four. Have a nice big, day. You got a big. The hole big in problem tank, with buddy. the eighty-eight though is it's not a three-sixty degree like a tiger. It only has that limited fire arc. Even mm. though it's on... Uh, yeah, a turntable. Yeah, a turntable. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. That's, we're not going to get into that. Um, uh, so that's a, that's a pretty big limiting factor. It is. And the fact uh, that in a lot of missions, you're going to have to tow it onto the board. But when so, you don't, you do have a half-tracked... Because the, that half-track, as you said, the 44-point regular one, is literally just a truck that's a half-track. So it's just a slower truck that holds, what, 12 guys uh, yeah, 12 and can guys. tow anything. So I love and, that vehicle. It's great. And it can drive over obstacles. Some think wheeled vehicles, a lot of people forget, can't. Exactly. So it can drive over a hedge. It can drive over a wall. Not through a building. building. And rubble. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite so, a building. No, I don't think you can drive through a building. Yeah. 
Now, the 88 can also be used as a light howitzer. So if they don't have any tanks, it's a really expensive light howitzer. I was going to say, but it also, but it's not, <laughs> it doesn't, it isn't that it can be used as a light howitzer. You're still using the 88's range, right? No, it actually fires as a light howitzer. Oh, that's crap. I was going to say, if you could use it as D6 HE with its usual range, that would be sensational. Just, you know, I, I don't care. Long range. Bam. A light howitzer yeah. that doesn't have long range penalties would be great. I mean, <laughs> sure, it would be really expensive, but it would be, it would be in, I'm looking for the positives here. I, I, I just have to say this. I know you're going to go into your list, but it is the most overpriced but most iconic thing in the game. Tiger I wish tank. Was better. <clears throat> tiger tank. <clears throat> uh, I reckon tiger it's tank. worse than a tiger tank. A tiger tank yeah. can drive around, has a, a coaxial MMG and a hull MMG, can run stuff over. This yeah, you can't run anything over. <laughs> and not only that, it's mortar bait. Oh yep. god, is it ever? Yeah, it's just although with gun shields protecting you from indirect. Yeah, it's, you still need the sixes to kill. Plus, you it's uh, just the pins. Yeah. yeah, it's the pins, yeah. and it's the. I mean, once that thing's got a couple of pins on it, it's it's fire effective. You know, it's fire effectiveness goes through the floor. Um, it's just or goes out the window. Whatever analogy you want to use. I, 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 was, I really want yeah. to see it work. Let's see what else you got, but Hold on. I was, I was listening to um, Home Guard Radio, and those guys were talking about... Um, oh, I was so going somewhere with this. Um, never mind. Go go ahead. Okay, so another good thing about it is it has seven crew. So with a gun shield, it can be quite hard to kill with small arm fire. Like that's a lot of guys with needing sixes to kill. Mm-hmm. And that actually comes into how I'm going to try and get a little bit more use out of it. I've also paired it up with the Nebel Offer. Oh, nice. So I'm going to sit them within 12 inches of each other. I hope this doesn't come out before CanCon because everyone's going to know my brilliant tactical <laughs> no. here. And you're going to trade career if one gets cacked. <laughs> so the Nebel Offer can fire first, and then if the enemy manages to kill all the crew because Nebelwerfer doesn't have any gun shield, so it's pretty easy to gun them four crewmen down. If I leave the 88 to the last thing in the turn, I can, when it fires, for free, you can send troops, uh, crewmen over to another gun within That's 12 inches. That's amazing, because it has eight crew. Yeah. So yeah, it has yeah, seven crew. So seven every crew. time I fire that, I'm just going to send one more guy over to the Nebelwerfer. <laughs> You're yeah. a terrible person. So... And put this as a scenario, as a possible scenario, and I've, I've never actually done it. I don't even know if you can do it. Let's just say an enemy squad is getting close and your 88 is holding an objective and you've got the option and you've got your full seven-man crew, right? And you're holding, you've got four or five pins on this 88 and a squad is within 12 inches. It's come forward, it's shot, put a pin on your, on your thing, but it's just sitting there 12 inches away or 10 inches away. And you go, well, I can aim at it with my light howitzer and I may hit it, but I'm rolling sixes and sixes. Except they're probably in your minimum range. And they're within minimum range, so you can't do much. Can you go, you know what, lads, let's just charge. And can you send that seven-man crew to assault that infantry squad? I'm pretty well, sure I'm... they can't assault. No, they can't. They can't launch assaults, unfortunately. They can fight in assaults. I yes. find that to be disturbing. It's a disturbing in 
you know, servants in the force. We should That's be awesome. able to do that, at least have some use yeah. out of that seven-man crew because they're just going to be absolutely sitting ducks. Yeah, but what are they going to do? Win the assault, it, you know, charge 12 inches, win the assault, and then not make it back to their gun with a consolidate? Yeah, but they but they lose all their pins, <laughs> and they're just a random seven-man infantry squad. And I, I know it's, it's certainly... It's but they just don't have rifles. They're, they can bring the 88 yeah. with them, Brad. <laughs> they just <laughs> use... their shoulder. Yeah, not a problem. don't you understand that? They're just using the expended rounds from the 88 to bash people over the head. Yeah. That's what they do. (laughs) And hold on. Just to go back to what I brain fuzzed earlier on, the the guys on Home Guard Radio were talking about they couldn't see – they're having trouble seeing a lot of good use for the mortar. And the first thing I thought of when they were saying that was, well, what are you going to use to get rid of those dug-in gun pieces? Um, that's really, in my mind, where those come in great. It's either hunting other mortars, things hitting things like Nebelwerfers or you know howitzers, howitzers in particular. Yeah, those are great against those. So in my mind, that's what I would use them for. Mm. Yeah, but you bring up a good point too. That's another thing with the Flak eighty eight patch with seven guys behind a gun shield. If I sit that on an objective, it can be a hard squad to move. Yeah, even if it gets pinned. Sure. It can still sit there and hold that objective for me. I yeah. love how positive you are about this. I can't <laughs> wait until the post-event oh, chat. I want to yeah. hear how this goes. I think this is great. So I'm going to oh, have I'm a really... never with unlimited crew as well. Yeah, no, Never-ending crew. I'm, so, I'm gunning for you, man. I'm so gunning for you, and I want to see you succeed. All right, so you got a never for an, an 88 and a truck. Um, yep. that, that is, <laughs> that is it. a strong tactic, but that's not an entire army. What, well, what else do you nearly have? half the army. Yeah, exactly. That's half your points. <laughs> One more point before I move on. Um, something that's in the rules I'm not sure about. Uh, so the way recruiting a gun works is if all the men are dead, you've got to, you, instead of removing the order dice from that artillery piece, you put it down next to the artillery piece yep. and you have till the end of that turn to move crew from another one within 12 inches. What do you think happens to the pins? Oh well, the pins are obviously associated with the troops, not the actual gun, right? I would say so. Yeah, I would say yeah. that the pins disappear if you wipe out the crew. Because if you yeah. wipe out the crew on a gun, it, in my mind, you would then automatically take away the pins, right? Is yeah, that see, yeah, it's I, not I it's not covered, that. but that's what I was thinking. But yeah, so that's another good thing. If if it's getting really pinned, I just want them to die. Yeah. Oh, dude, you're so so bloodthirsty. You are a Russian player. (laughs) Okay, so then I have a lieutenant. Uh, Well, I've got two because it's obviously two platoons. Mm -hmm. I've got one lieutenant with two buddies, and they've got assault rifles. Nice. And then I've got another lieutenant just by himself, and he's going to go in the horch with some other guys that I'll get to in a moment. Then I've got three squads of just eight riflemen, which are just basically my hold the objective squads mm-hmm. and try and protect the 88. I then have a Stu 42. Oh, wow. Yep, that's some firepower. Mm. So, yeah, that's to try and help the Nebuwafa delete squads and actually not die because it's got a bit of armor around it. Yeah, exactly. And it's got the medium, medium howitzer. Yeah. Or heavy. That, see, that'll make medium. people keep their heads down. When I was well, running the Tiger, thing. I didn't have the points to take something that would make people keep their heads down and people were just running around willy-nilly and I was putting holes in vehicles, but squads were just ignoring me. With that Stu-42, having played against one today, um, I had a squad in trees, got a hit, 
that squad of eight dudes was deleted. Like that really is a force changer. Like that will change mm. the swing of the battle with one shot. That's cool. And that's the other thing I hope with enemy armor, they either have to deal with the Stu forty two or they have to deal with the eighty eight. Yeah. So hopefully if they're going for my tank that can delete squads, my eighty eight might be able to survive long enough to put a shot or two into enemy tanks. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And then my last unit that's going in the Horch with the Lieutenant is five Brandenburgers. Oh, I'm so uh, excited that you're putting those in there. Now, tell us why you did that besides the fact that nobody's done it yet. I just wanted to try them out, really. Um, I think the rule, the rule I think, will help me too. They're um, the extra neg one to reserves, and when people try and outflank, they have to pass another test or else they only come in halfway or actually a quarter of the way across the table from out flank. That's it, up, up to 12 inches off their own um, deployment line. Back edge. Yeah. It's such a cool rule, yeah. So oh, that's um, also going to help prevent them just outflanking and killing my 88 and Nebelwaffer without flankers like cavalry or a it, flank. It's going to add that. Like, it's going to really add that extra bit of dimension to your thinking if, if you know, you say to them, oh, look, these are my squad of bacon burgers. And... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they're like, oh, what does that do? And you're like, oh, look, man, if you want to bring in things from reserve, it's a further negative one. And if you want to bring them in from there, you've got this chance to fail and you could end up on your own line. And they'll be sitting yeah. there going, well, I've got regular troops coming on and that's already at negative one, so I'm rolling eights. That means that at sevens and I've got to roll, there's no way I'm going to pass that. Like to, I would say that because there's no way I would pass that. And I yeah. would not be bringing things in from reserve because... By turn three, if you miss one turn, it can affect your whole game of having those units off the table. So I would be, I would be going, oh, that, so those, those, that unit, the bacon burgers, are just going to be so amazing to test people mm-hmm. as to what their strategic thinking and where they're just going to roll the dice and go, yeah, roll your, roll your sixes, bro. Basically, I'm going to bring them on. Awesome. That's going to be such a good unit to play. Now, you're and, taking those all with assault rifles, right? Uh, no, I've got four with SMGs and one with a Panzerfaust. Oh, wow, nice. I, sorry, I was, was going to go assault rifles, yeah. and you talked me into the SMGs. I love the SMGs. When you're running around in a horch, I, look, assault rifles are amazing, but when you're running around in a horch, you're going to be driving up and getting in people's grills. I mean, mm. save yourself a couple of points, go submachine guns, and use the points on something else later, yeah. I love the yeah. fanatics. The fanatics rule with them, and they're just going to be so yeah. they're so hard to kill. But it was interesting that you know there was a bit of a talk on, the, on one of the Facebook pages about taking in a whole a whole force of of the bacon burger. The, I'll, I'll say it right, Brandon Burgers. Yeah. And um, I was thinking about it and going, well, there's nothing stopping you from doing so, but I think you lose value of the units after you've taken the first one. Yeah, I um, definitely think definitely. So. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make a lot of like you know. You just think, well, why not just take fanatical SS vets or something? Because unless you're really going for a theme, but it's yeah. kind of like, well, you know, you you don't get multiple. They can't have negative five to come on the table because you've got five units. So you're kind <laughs> of just losing that. Um, you're paying for points, but you're not really getting anything more. Agreed. The difference would be in a fun game if you're using the optional rules where they yeah, can like sure. be disguised as allied squads and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. They, they look like it would be a lot of fun. You know, you can't... If they take a, um, a 
friendly vehicle, for example, you know, you, no other, no, none of your units can actually shoot it <laughs> um, until it's within twelve inches or something like that, isn't it? Or you've got to pass an order. Yeah, test something like isn't that. that but hold on, do you actually do that? Um, they're op- they're optional. Uh, optional. I would say those are optional. Yeah. You can't. Yeah, those aren't tournament rules. So no, I, I immediately don't read those. Um, I know that makes me yeah. kind of a bad person, but I'm, I'm I always huh. read straight for the tournament rules because those when I play friendly games, I tend to play people who are practicing for tournaments. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. But man, and one other thing that should be mentioned: that paranoia role is cool. I've had two, I've had in my last two games, I've had a foobar roll and having a minus two to that roll would have meant I would have been shooting at my own troops both times. Yeah. Yeah. Means uh, you've got a, a yeah. four in six chance of shooting your own guys. Yeah. I mean, well, I can, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, if I was facing your list, if we say a traditional French list or something that I, I would take, I would have a lot of problems, a lot of problems, primarily because I roll a lot of foobars. Um, <laughs> But but also because I could not bring anything on from reserve, and particularly with my where I take the forty inexperienced troops, and uh, there's no way they they on the table. They're not. I'm not rolling for them at all. <laughs> I can't afford an extra extra negative one on on inexperience. So I, I'm really looking forward to the the after action reports from the tournament for you, Amp. Yeah, man. I was going to say it's that's pretty uh, typical though, because the Blitzkrieg pretty much was a French foobar, wasn't it? <laughs> the whole thing rolled Fuba. Yeah, run run away from the nearest night. No, of course not. Yeah, dude, I really I I really like um the way that that works. Um I, it, there's so much neat synergy in there that when I looked at your list I wasn't considering. Um but I really yeah, man, I think it's a clever use of some really brutal units with some really neat units that no one's seen. Um, I'm really, yeah. yeah, I really want to hear how this is going. You're light on troops, but you've got some big stinking toys. That's the yeah, biggest think, weakness, light on bodies. Yeah, not I think there's a, there's a vulnerability, which um, I'm sure you're, you're fully aware of with that list, which is the, you know, by parking those, that Nurble Werfer and the 88 together, you really ask them for those arty strikes and that, that air. Yeah. yeah. But you just got to roll your dice, right? Maybe... Maybe you'll play five games and no one will take it, or maybe in the games they take they'll roll a one or they'll choose another target. But I just can't. Me, if I was playing the Arty Strike or the Air, my first target is going to be the eighty-eight and the Nerva Werfer together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My uh, my British Arty would be going exactly in between those two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Catch, have fun. <laughs> I, I'm um, pretty sure I can. Yeah. What is it? Six inches plus a D six or it's, something. Yeah, six plus um, D six. So yeah, yeah. That, that would just about cover that, wouldn't it? You wouldn't even you could roll a one and still cover both units. Yeah, so say, I, I only need them within twelve inches of each other, so I can spread them out a little bit. You get, yeah, but, they, yeah, they, but yeah. still, if you get the exactly in between them, it will yeah. six inches in both directions will still hit both. The so. uh, the footprint of that eighty eight two is massive. Oh yeah, I had to get a custom base made for it because I actually mounted mine on the carriage as well. Uh, so, yeah, so it's yeah. ridiculous. I oh, think I can, when I can deploy it on the table, I can barely fit it in the deployment zone. It's 11 mm-hmm. inches long. That's unbelievable. Oh, it's, it's like the, the Char 2C, but just yep. a little bit shorter. <laughs> now, see, the fun thing with that is when you unlimber a gun, it just comes straight off the back. So with my half track, I can move in nine inches and then do a 180 degree because it can do two turns. Yeah. And then I can just fling the AD out eight out the back towards the middle of the table. Whoa. So you could get a good, like, 18 inches in. 
Well, yeah, so, 11 inches is the size of the base on the end of the 9-inch move, so 20 inches to the middle of the table. Uh, <laughs> Can you imagine what that would look like in real life? I mean, yeah, in real life it wouldn't look like that, but you'd have, you know, have this little half-track towing this gigantic thing, you know, kind of imagine it sort of, you know, the front two wheels sort of hovering above the ground because the back's so laden yeah. down. I, I think you should model a soldier hanging onto the barrel, like, <laughs> at a 45-degree at a angle, like the he's being flung around. Yeah. Okay, I, I think we should have that. That'd be good. <laughs> well, Great. gentlemen, um, I, I think um, it is time that we take a break, and uh, when we come back, I think it is definitely time to talk about, um, well, I guess my CanCon army. We haven't done that, but we are going to also tie that into a conversation about Monte Cassino because the Sikhs did or the Indian army did fight there. So, yep. Uh, And without that, we will be right back. Alert the year 1910 Martian forces have advanced on the Mississippi defense line. Our brave boys are fighting a pitched battle against these strange invaders. With our latest steam tanks and wonder weapons from Tesla and Edison, we prepare to counterattack. But we cannot succeed without your help. Grab your paints, dice, and brushes and prepare to do battle against these alien invaders. Head over to architectsofwar.com to learn about the new game currently invading game tables everywhere, all quiet on the Martian front. Find out how you can help save yourself and humanity. All quiet on the Martian front. From the beginning of Bolt Action, we in the Southern Hemisphere have been able to get Warlord Games and Bolt Action products from War and Peace Games, the Australian distributor of Warlord. They have always had a great selection of Warlord's miniatures to help us to get Bolt Action models without having to pay shipping or having to wait for shipping from the Northern Hemisphere. In recent months, They've gone out of their way at War and Peace Games to expand their World War II 28mm range. They now carry Perry Brother models. All of those sensational Africa Corps and the other ranges now available. Artisan Designs, some of the best-looking miniatures out there, also available. Rubicon, those plastic, variable World War II tanks that just fit together like a dream, now available for War and Peace Games. And now they also carry Manirons. Guys, if you haven't seen this stuff, you should get over to warandpeacegames.com.au. Their stuff is sensational. They have such a great range of World War II at 28 millimeter. Got to go over and take a look. You know, we always look for great models. Their selection is second to none, and their turnaround time is amazing. Look them up. Give them a call. Their knowledge of World War II and World War II products in related in relation to bolt action is second to none. John and Ian will sort you out. Give them a call. Look them up. Welcome back to the Ghost Army Podcast. We're going to get fully sick up in here, and Brad's going to tell us about his CanCon list. When you say fully sick, do you mean fully sick? Because, yeah. Sorry, that joke's going to be really old. I can't con. It's as bad as the hungry Hungarians are. Right? Oh, it's worse. <laughs> um, yeah, I got a, a friend sent me a a meme that had a, a like a, a Sikh bodybuilder, a guy who's you know Arnold Schwarzenegger size when he was Mister Universe, wearing you know the turban with the beard, and it says like Sikh ga- Sikh gains, bro, and it was like, oh wow, it's like that. <laughs> huh? 
<laughs> anyway, um, yes, I will be running uh, an Indian army at CanCon this year. Um, so my list revolves around... I was trying to be vaguely historic, like with my deck, and I wanted something that was mobile and hitty, like my deck. And I ended up with something completely different, having played the army a few times. Um, let me tell you the list, and then we can talk about how it works. Um, I have an inexperienced lieutenant with two inexperienced friends with SMGs. Um, I picked that guy because um, though um, a lot of Sikh units had, um, you know, were respected by their, you know, British by British officers, they were still attached British officers. Um, and but a lot of Indian regiments in general, um, because Winston Churchill was not a fan um, of Indian soldiers. Um, weren't really respected, and a lot of the people that Winston Churchill put in charge of sort of entire armies, like Montgomery, for example, also didn't really respect Indian soldiers. I've been reading up a lot and watching a lot of documentaries that were talking about how um, English officers um, often, you know, it wasn't necessarily seen as a a good duty um, to be put in charge of an Indian unit. And it wasn't until later in the war that Indian units started having their own commanding officers. So anyway, I have an inexperienced lieutenant to reflect that, um, not to be political. Uh, I have five late war veterans, um, basically five veterans with three SMGs. Um, the lieutenant and those vets with the three SMGs are in a truck. Uh, I have five regular riflemen. Uh, in an Indian carrier, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it is literally a universal carrier with wheels. Um, I have another five riflemen in another Indian carrier, so two squads of five in Indian carriers. Both Indian carriers have the additional pintle-mounted LMG, and both of them have a hull-mounted LMG, and one of those two squads of five regular guys has two SMGs. I have two eight-man regular rifleman squads. Um, they're sort of the backbone of my ground forces. They're backed up by an arty observer, a medium mortar, um, and a blackguard bomber, uh, bombard. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, a 25-pounder artillery piece and a recce Indian carrier. Um, that's the armored car version, which is literally the same as the troop carrier, except it doesn't have to have guys inside of it to fire the weapons, and it has recce. And the whole thing is rounded out with a regular Mark I M3 Lee, which is the coolest tank ever. Um, I have just started playing games with it. I had no idea how good it was until I started playing. Um, it is a medium tank that has three, well, it has a medium um, anti-tank gun in the hull that can be fired as D6HE. It's got a light anti-tank gun in a turret. And then another turret on top of that turret. Um, I feel like there should be an exhibit meme here. It said, yo, dog, I heard you like turrets on your turrets. Um, because there is that third turret on top has a medium machine gun. So this thing is a pin sprinkler if there ever was one. You can fire three different weapon systems at three different just targets. Brad? Yeah. Brad, isn't it uh, in the hull mounted is just purely a light howitzer, isn't it? It's not a medium AT gun. No, it is a medium AT gun. Really? It's a medium AT gun that fires D6HE. It's the it's the same turret gun that's ah. in a, For uh, some a reason, Sherman. yeah. Look, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting it confused with um, the, the char. 
Oh yeah, the no, job. It's, yeah, it's only got a light howitzer, and that's got a definite medium AT. Yeah, yeah it's no a medium worries, AT. So, so yeah, it's a great, it's a great tank. Um, and the See, love- and the and the, just to quickly finish, the Blackguard Bombard that I talked about earlier, the Blackguard Bombard was developed for home guard def- uh, defense. It's a giant Piat essentially. It's a giant. Um, it's a tube with a rocket, and it just fires out. It's pretty crappy. It doesn't fire very well. It it went out of favor pretty quickly. But for some reason, I think because the guy who developed it was... I know that someone else has told me this on another podcast, and I forgot. I'm pretty sure he had connections with Indian regiments. So the only units that ever really used this outside of home defense on British soil, because um, it was developed to be used against the Germans if they ever invaded, were Indian units. So yeah, it's a... 24-inch D6HE weapon um, that does one pin. So, yeah. Is that uh, spring-loaded like the Piat as well? Uh, it doesn't have that rule, no. It's just... Uh, no. Uh, no rule, just the Piats actually were, like, uh, just fired with a big spring. I think it might be. It is literally <laughs> a tube with a shell in it. It's like a mortar that you fire directly at somebody. It looks ridiculous. Uh, I'm going to do an article in the next week or two about how to make one because there was only one company that made it in 28 mil and they're not currently making models. So I'm going to have to convert one. So far, mine looks like a small pile of uh, Panzerfausts and a Russian grenade that I'm going to cut apart and rebuild. So, yeah, awesome stuff. <laughs> but, yeah, so say, that's, um, that's my list. What do you think, guys? I was going to say the Leon paper looks so awesome. But in person, it is such an ugly vehicle. Oh, it's it's a wild. Oh, I'm just going to throw that out there. It's also anyone who's super played, tall. Uh, World of Tanks, I, I think it's amazing to see that thing going along. It's just like a barn, just on tracks rolling yeah. around, and, and to see it on a table, it looks amazing too. It looks big square you come thing. From all the sexy German tanks, and then you see a Lee. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. One of my opponents called it the big bully. And I think I'm going to actually write Bully Boy. I'm going to, you know, put a little scrawl on the side and say Bully Boy on it. It is, it's just, it's big, it's and, ugly, it's mean, it's great. Yeah, and dude, it's like a rocket ship when you've been playing French tanks. It's like a rocket ship compared to a car. It's just amazing <laughs> technology. <Yeah. laughs> See, it's uh, not even slow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But tech, uh, now here's the thing. Slightly controversially, um, and some of the other guys and some of the other podcasts have been saying I'm silly for taking this version of the league. I took the cheap early version of the leagues. I'm running for a desert list, not a later list. And I know the later models did make an appearance, but whatever. I went for early Lee. I took the Lee that has the vulnerable sides and is prone to catching fire. It's, it's uh, cheaper. It's cheaper, yeah. It's 220 points regular for that giant barn of a tank with th- you know two turrets and three weapon systems. Yeah, I, think I don't Brad, see catching fire as a bad thing. It hardly ever yeah. happens. Hardly ever. But, but if, when you've, it does. if you've got hit and you're on fire, you're in trouble anyway. So usually the game's over when the, the thing goes on fire. Yeah. Um, but Agreed. I think... Brad, from your list, I can see that it's it's a really mobile list. So yeah. you're always you know, you're always going to be um, better on open tables with a lot of movement. I think in closed yeah. tables it might be a lot more difficult, um, where there's not a lot of like there's a lot of hedges and stuff in the way could could affect that movement of those vehicles. Um, but but the small teams in in the um, India carriers are they're so vulnerable. But I get 
because your maximum capacity is only five, isn't it? It is. That's literally as big as they carry. Um, yeah. So outside and, of your yeah. two eight-man squads, you've only got another two five-man squads. Is that right? I do have the veteran squad that's in the And, and the veteran the squad. Yeah, but they're yeah. also five exactly as well. So three five-man troops and two eight-man troops. Yeah, I, um, I'm so, I have so few dudes. But in order yeah. to get the three Indian carriers in, three Indian carriers are 60 points, and I'm paying an additional 10 point for the Pintle-mounted LMG. So I'm spending 210 points in three transports that hold 15 guys, or not even 10 guys in the thing. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, so, yeah, I'm essentially spending 250 points on transports, and they're, they're not especially good. Um, but it's going to be something that no one has very rarely, like, not many people would have seen something like that. When they look at your army across the table, they're going to look at it and go, I have no idea how this is going to play. Mm. It's not your traditional force that you would see. Yeah. It's it's all these vehicles. It's four four vehicles, right? Yeah. Um, you know, four vehicles, three of them are armored carriers with two LMGs each on them. And it's going to be... I think they're going to be put back initially. How do I play this? Um, and you'll just have to, yeah, roll up and see. Uh, you obviously, you, you know your weaknesses in your infantry um, and holding objectives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and once you get them on objective, it's going to be hard to hold them, particularly if you've got a couple of, you know, big squads coming at you. Um, yeah. I, with I've, tough fighter. I've played a few games with it, and basically the way the list works unlike the deck that sort of went in and was sort of a, like a glass hammer, it would hit, smash people, um, but because it was six-man squads and they were veterans, um, you know, they held up fairly well, but sometimes they would just yeah. disappear. I'm running regular five-man squads in open-top transports. I, they, they just, it doesn't hit is the other thing. Two LMGs is not going to give you a lot of casualties in enemy models. So what I've what this list has basically been doing and it kind of works is running around and splitting fire. So I'll often run the Indian carriers side by side or at least two of them paired up, drive up a flank towards a unit or and then or two units I should say. One LMG from the hull will fire at one unit. The other one will fire at that unit from the other Indian carrier. And then the pintle mounts will fire at a different unit. So two separate units will, you know, have three chances to hit, which even if hitting on sixes is usually, you know, not awful, um, which will put a pin on. And the whole idea is load up some units with some pins and then especially if I can hit that side of the board with my free arty observer then, you know, I can start cleaning them up with the D6HE, kill a couple of guys using that, and then force a leadership test. If they have four or five pins, watch people go. That's mm. the only way that works because I've tried it a few other I think other another ways. thing to remember... Yeah. Another thing to remember, too, is the guys can then jump out after, if you've only advanced and shoot and add another pin. This yeah, is true. That's right. Yeah, they get that third pin on a unit, and then, you know, next turn... Um, get so up the turn that... Yeah, the turn you spring your assault, you could potentially easily drop four pins on two or three different units. Mm. Now, you got, it, I, I should actually look up the rules on this. If you jump out of a vehicle, and then in the next yeah. turn you jump back into the vehicle, can the vehicle Still then... shoot. It, but it can't move. No, it can't move. Oh, okay. In the turn you embark, uh, embark on a vehicle, it can't move. Yeah, I yeah. found that if the Indian carriers don't move, they're dead. Um, because they're t yeah. they're wheeled, they zip around at twelve. Or I mean, I you know occasionally run them twenty four inches, and 
you know, if I can sort of put my army along, sort of spread it out, I have 15 dice. So I often get the first couple of dice in the turn, which really gives me an advantage to move things around as I want or get those early hits off. Um, yeah. With that, I, I, yeah, I, I've done the four, you know, I've done the setup across the board and then taken half my army and gone completely to the left or to the right and centered my, you know, all of my attack on half of my opponent's army after they've spread out. And if they have an elite army that only has like eight or nine dice, um, and I played one of those today that had nine dice, I just ignored half of the army, went out, started attacking one part, and then started whittling it down. Mm. Um, because I can't face an entire army with that force, but I can take out half and then I, I... turn and face the other. For sure. I can also see you doing what Brian liked to um, do with his Aussies, and um, which is get that arty strike in early and then capitalize through some vehicles that can move up and keep the pins adding up on those things so they're always on the back foot. Yeah. And I can see you playing it that you get the arty strike in. It puts a couple of pins on some units. And by the time you know the dice rolls around, you've brought up three of those India carriers with two ability to pin two units each and just putting those extra pins on. So by the end of turn two, for example, they could have units in their back quarter which have got three or four pins on. And once you're at that level, you know, you've just really, you own the tape. Um, you, you own that because they're not going to come back. Three's a magic number and once you've got units breathing down their throats, because um, if you get a good road, 24 inches up the table and then those LMGs are shooting out to 30. Yep. You're covering everything, man. It's that whole shock and awe tactic. Big bang, artillery explosion. Everything's in their face. They're not getting a chance to recover. You're dictating the movement on the table. They're already on the back foot, and they're rolling leadership tests um, or morale tests just to try and activate with three or four pins in the end of turn two. Agreed. Could work. Could work. Yeah, it's very dice dependent. I had a few turns today where it just went all wrong. Um and I found that if you know if somebody gets three or four pins on the Indian carriers, it's mm. terrible because everyone that's in the vehicle also, even though they're armor seven armored cars, they're open top. So even rifles can put pins on them. Every time you put a rifle on the car, of course, the guys inside take a pin too. So all of a sudden, you have a unit in one of these vehicles that you know has three or four pins, and the only way to get rid of them is either to go down and stay down or to get out of the vehicle. And in order to do that, you have to pass a test. And these are regular squads. So if you get four pins on them, you know, you need a five. It's, it's just not good. Mm. I think in the early turns, when you know that you're not going to get out of those vehicles, you just need to remember to go down, stay down, yeah. just to shed that one or two pins you might pick up in the first turn or two. But yeah. when you know that you're not going to get out anyway... Completely and, agreed. And another thing too, what national rule have you gone for with the British? That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that because I completely forgot to say that. Um, I've gone for tough as boots. Um, I did that um, because I thought it sort of represented... I was watching a lot of these documentaries and um, a number of the Victorian cross winners um, for the Indian regiments. There were a, a ton, uh, well, a ton, like 20... Indian soldiers who in World War II got in, um, Victorian crosses. And I was wow. watching stories about those guys. And they were just, you know, they were awesome in hand-to-hand. -hand. They just, they were tough 
they just fought and fought and fought. There was a story of uh, an artilleryman who um, was surrounded by Japanese soldiers, uh, and they lost sight of him in the battle, and he was protecting his gun. All of his buddies on the crew were dead. Um, and they found him w- with what they called seven serious wounds surrounded, you know, over his gun, protecting it, um, unconscious with the bodies of 10 Japanese soldiers around him. Um, and it was, and he was one of the guys that won the Victorian cross and they interviewed him and he was just like this nice little guy sitting in a chair and you're like, yeah, that dude's tough. So I gave these guys tough as tough as boots, which means for every three guys, I get one additional assault dice in hand-to-hand combat, which, as I'm running five-man squads, is hardly, mm. you know, maximal. Um, doesn't really make the most, but I like it. I think it. I think it represents the nature of that I wanted to give my soldiers. I should say. Yeah. Look, I mean, half that rule is is determining what it is that you're you want to play with. Um, and if you want to play with that rule, then and you're comfortable playing with it, then it, then it's great. I mean, you can argue that a more useful rule could be something like the um, blood curdling charge, or yeah, you know yeah. something which is like a lot of people go for that um, up and atom, up and atom, and that and that in itself, we know that the mechanics say if you do an up and atom, you can shed pins on a failed charge, yeah. and um, and that itself is a bit. I don't think you shed the... Oh, yeah, you do. You do. Yeah. You shed the one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the one. Yeah, you're right. Not all of them, the one. Because you, the one, you and then, then you shed the... Yeah, so you can just keep moving forward, but half the... You know, like you can have those ones, and the blood-curdling charge is the one where um, if they haven't acted, as in the enemy unit hasn't acted, they still can't shoot at your unit coming in for an assault. Correct. Um and that can work well in your favour, particularly with small man squad, uh, small squads. Yeah. So you so don't have that chance. But I think um, you go with the rule that you feel comfortable with and you want to run, and that's half the theme of your army. Would work because you can't assault out of the transports. Yeah. Mm, that's this true. Is true. But vengeance could be a good one, I would, I would think, because you're potentially going to be close to the enemy, and that gives you a four plus chance to yeah. shed extra pin. Just for when your yeah. guys do get trapped inside the transports with like four or five pins on them. Yeah, that's yeah. a really and good it, point. I probably should have done that. Armored cars can't assault, can they? Can't assault infantry? No, uh, it needs ones. to be eight plus. Yeah, it's got to be um, eight plus. It needs to be light tank, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Which that's is why the, the Puma does it. Yeah. Sorry, the Puma does that because though it is a wheeled armored car, it is actually heavy, heavily enough armored to be considered a light tank. So, yeah, I think it's the, the kangaroo or the... the is it the Ram Kangaroo, yeah, which the is the Armour 9? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or is it eight? Yeah, it can, that's the one, the transport is one of the only ones that actually assault, assault troops. Yeah, it just has to be an 8-plus vehicle. So both the types of kangaroos are 8 and 9. So that's yeah. one list I want to eventually try. But Yeah, those are, the, those are tracked, though. But when you have, like the Puma, for example, it's wheeled. Oh, you get that wheeled. thing yeah, on the yes. road and you can just tank shot yeah. people to death. I can't think of anyone who's ever done that to me in a tournament game. Oh, hi, Anthony. How are you? <laughs> hey, I don't think it actually done anything, did it? I'm no, I'm pretty sure you dived out of the way. I did every <sighs> time, but it still was like, oh my god, what is he doing? Yeah. I, <sighs> I had no idea that a Puma did that. Yeah, but I think after, half the thing with running these lists is, is again, you don't have to run the toughest list. Um, yeah. And I think kudos for running different lists like it's a bit boring to turn up to every tournament with the identical list 
Um, and I think as as members of here, you want to run, you know, different different stuff so that you, I don't know, you're trialing things. And no one, the, uh, you two guys, I've never seen an eighty eight on a table in a tournament in Australia. I've never seen Indian carriers in no. anywhere before. And and you're both taking really unique units, and and they can both you can both make them work um, because you're you're both very experienced players, and you know it's a new element to the game. It's not this is a great example of everyone not taking the exact same units. Not everyone's taking a Sherman, for example, or not everyone's taking a a Panzer four or you know um, well, two Veteran Shermans, SS Toby. or two Shermans. Yeah, but, two Shermans or two Lees or whatever else. Yeah, but but isn't that the glory of tournaments? Isn't this the the type of um, community we want to foster? Where yeah, you turn up to a tournament and there could be anything. Like so. there's going to yeah. be so many different types of units on the table. Um, that it adds that depth to it. Um, it's definitely yeah. what I enjoy. Yeah, me too. Me I, too. I love that about the Australian scene. I look at, uh, I mean, some other game systems in particular that I've played in, certain lists, net lists, for example, start to be the norm. People see specific army lists online and they get all excited yeah. about them. And then all of a sudden you'll see 10 of the same army out of like a 30-person field. Literally, almost cut and paste, the same army. And you end up playing the same army twice, maybe even three times in a tournament. Uh, I remember way back to the golden days of, you know, whatever edition Warhammer 40,000 it was, like 12, 15 years ago. And over the course of the weekend, I played out of six games, I played five games against Eldar. Um, Yeah. And it was... (laughs) Five and of those five games, four of the lists were identical, and it just it was I just you know, and my army was the paper to its scissors, and I just got minced in four games because it was this one build, and I should have you know looked at the meta more specifically, I guess, but I really I think when you start taking things that are just OP or taking things that are whatever really considered to be the best thing every time, you end up getting really boring tournaments and really boring lists because you don't see that yeah. variety. Now, I'm not saying that is happening in other places. Um, I have to apologize to Mark Dog, um, our good buddy in the West Coast of the United States. Um, in the last LRG podcast, um, the boys got me all riled up, intentionally tried to make me mad, and they did. I knew my knees jerked. Um, and in the process, I made some unfortunate comments about the United States being in a power creep um, where everything goes up and up and up. And that isn't the case in the West Coast. I'm not even sure that's the case after talking to Judd about it after he listened to the radio show. Um, on the East Coast, um, I... It just listening to the bar and reading different post action events, that's what it seemed like. So I was worried that bolt action in parts of the United States maybe had been going that way that Warhammer had for me back in the day. But it appears as though that's not the case, and I'm really glad to hear that. I just I wanted to always, say that on a podcast, yeah. That's always sort of the speculation on the net, though. There's always the fear of the MMG Jeep list and so on. Like yeah. these ridiculously powerful lists, but I don't think they ever actually really come into fruition. No, we've never seen them. No, I don't think that's anywhere. I think people still world round are good at sort of limiting themselves to sensible lists. Yeah, I've not I've not seen the the big power lists. It's, it's very heavily frowned upon if people even start talking about it. 
and they self-regulate and go, yeah, of course you get the new guys who come into the game and they don't know, you know, it's not like they um, intentionally do it, but they just don't realise that, you know. You can't, you, yeah, they don't realise the scene, they don't realise, they look at it and go, I could take two Satan flame tanks and four artillery observers and, you know, and they yeah. and then they turn up to a game and people go, oh, dude, you know, it's not really in the spirit. For, but they don't know. Yeah, they and don't. Once, you, once they realise that, and that's cool. You never you don't see the broken list. And I was going to say about about Mark, um, he's he's a great supporter of the cast. And I when he he writes stuff on the the WWPD forum, mm-hmm. it, it's worth reading. You, you do, and all respect to you, brother. You're doing a, an awesome job. And he's a great player. I mean, he brings yeah. some really insightful comments. Clearly, Mark and his friends play a lot of bolt action. I think they're actually running uh, an event the same weekend as CanCon uh, at Mugu Games. And, yeah, those bros, I mean, they do it right. Um, they they have a lot of events. They have a lot of um, campaigns. And, yeah, they just know how to play. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. When I hear 1250 points, which is something that, you know, we haven't moved to here in Australia, but it's certainly something that is spreading out a lot more. I feel Absolutely. like he's the origin of that, mm-hmm. and he he started off playing at twelve fifty points, and um, he's really you know educated us, and and I'm quite happy to play twelve fifty point games now. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've designed a list very shortly about the Italian campaign, which is twelve fifty points that we're going to chat about. That's right. The problem is when we go to twelve fifty, they'll go to fifteen hundred. <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, if they haven't, uh, and I think actually talking to Mark, he has. Um, we took on um, with the last event. We took on the Home Guard Radio suggestion of going to seven fifty, and the next December. I'm sorry, the February event that we're talking about is eight hundred points. Going backward to a smaller game is very tactical. It changes the yeah. way you build a list completely um, in that a lot of the toys you have to leave behind and it makes for sort of balanced lists. I think that 1,250 points, according to Mark, does the same thing because it gives you a chance to get to that second platoon. You need more troops because people have mm-hmm. the toys and, to- and and it gives people the chance to take the toys. But those toys all of a sudden aren't as dangerous because there's more troops hanging around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think maybe a thousand scale, points. Okay. We just get used to playing at a thousand points, and certain things are over the top at a thousand points. But maybe they're not at over the top at twelve hundred fifty or fifteen hundred or yeah, at seven hundred and fifty. I do feel like Mark is um really you know he, he challenged he challenged that thinking that conventional thinking of always a thousand points. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. And I just want to say I will get to uh, Mugu Games for a game. I was supposed to go there when I was in Canada, but I'm coming back in a couple of months. I will get there for a game, Mark. You have to represent us, man. I know. You have to represent. I still have to represent Lachlan. <laughs> when, <laughs> when they called, got a when they called him out for yeah, when they called him out for being a terrible Italian player. Hey, yeah. I, I for the record, if if you have not listened to the last LRDG. Uh, and I know Mark Dog has because he caught my comments and <laughs> caught me being a jerk. Um, Lachlan did win that event with his Italians. Um, he yep. played that event sensationally. So, again, big ups to Lachlan. He's gone through the hard days with that list, um, but he has tweaked and played and really gotten to know the Italians. Um, he was right up there for Moab, too, wasn't he? Uh, he got... Um, he was... Second, yeah, he was, he was mid, mid-range. He was mid-range. He was mid-range, but he was second best minor power general. He was sweating uh, too much on day two. Yeah. 
That's it. I've just I've just got to uh, quickly let the dog out. Okay. I, I feel like there should be a musical interlude there. <laughs> Sounds like a dog that should have been the segue to Mark Dog, but yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, dude. Oh, uh, yeah. Lachlan has put a lot of hard work in his Italians. I uh, I'm looking forward to see what he does now that he's trying something different. Um, for those who haven't listened, he is taking uh, Marines to uh, Cancun, and so is America. Warlord Murica, and so is Warlord Tobu. So the LR, I'm the only member of the LRDG that will be playing bolt action at Cancun with not Marines. So anyway, moving on. Also, uh, yes, just to hit on uh, how we're just talking about really unique armies. Brian's also bringing his Hungarians, which will be the first time I've heard Hungarians being used in a tournament. I'm super excited to see those. They look so good. And yeah, he's it? taking a Hetzer. I love yeah. the Hetzer. So and he's going to hit. He's panic painting at the moment, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he Which is. His, models are, his miniatures are going to look so bad. They're going to be horrible. Could you imagine what they're going to look like? I was going to say, that guy panic painting still is like five times better than what I can do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the dude yeah. can throw paint from across the room and it's going to look better than what I do. Uh, dude, I, I look at his stuff and I look at my stuff and I look at his stuff and I look at my stuff and I'm like, how long did it take you to paint that? He's like, oh, it's fine. It took me a night. And I just look at it. I'm like, you suck. It took, yeah. me, <laughs> took me two months to paint this five-man you squad. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he's really effective at finding those quick uh, but really effective um, – Methods that just you know work really well make the models pop. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, yeah. check out the check out the um, boldaction.net for anyone listening. And he's he's got a couple of tutorials up there, and I think we can all learn a lot by having a look at those. That's right. Now, before we go to break, and before we get into the whole um, Monte Cassino revisited part two electric boogaloo kind of thing, I did want to point out that. And I know I've said Home Guard Radio twice so far this podcast. So this is number three. Home Guard Radio uh, actually sent somebody down to the magical land of Oz. And it was sensational to see Al. Uh, Allie, as they call him on that podcast. Um, but Big Al to us back in Melbourne. Came back to town with his lovely, fee, uh, not fee, his lovely partner, Fee. And um, we went out, had a couple drinks, and had delicious Chinese food. And just talked bolt action. And it was really good to see. Um, guys, community is so important. If you get the chance, um, if catch up with friends, I know most people would do that, but sometimes, you know, we get caught up with got to paint this model for this, that, and the other thing. And I was sweating, painting my fins and you know what? It was worth it to put the fins down and to really just hang out and, you know, just talk shop and catch up. And yeah, so it's important to, uh, to have friends, I think is what I'm going with that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, these half these tournaments, are, the the soldiers are a secondary thing. Uh, it's an excuse to get together and just hang out with people that you you generally enjoy spending time with. Um, and, and miniatures is something you do while you're doing that. That's right. And uh, and I didn't not play him because I refused to play a flame tank, and he only takes them. Um, we actually ran out of time. So I'm looking forward to the next time he comes to town or the next time I'm in Scotland for the great, um, I wouldn't say rematch because we haven't played a bolt action game yet, but we played many others. I'm looking forward to the big, uh, the big match. Anyway, uh, guys, I think, uh, does anyone else have anything they want to add before we go to Monte Casino? No. 
No. <laughs> Great let's, let's go. I'm, I'm keen. I'm keen. All right. Let's go. Off to Monte Casino we go. Wargame Soldiers and Strategy Magazine is the historical gamer source for product reviews, painting tips, and tutorials covering every genre from ancients all the way to the modern age. Each issue has incredible pictures and dioramas as well as articles written by the industry's most recognized names. Click on the WSS banner at the top of our site and use the coupon code WWPD to save 15% on your subscription today. WSS, it's time to play with history. We as hobbyists are always looking for those, that little extra something to make our army pop on the tabletop. Guys, if you are looking for some sort of great pin marker or objective, I highly recommend you check out LaserTouch. LaserTouch creates custom laser-cut plastic tokens for pin markers and for objectives. So what you might say, well, they make them for every nation in bolt action. They also make them for your favorite podcasts, the Ghost Army Podcast, the LRDG, Bar is Coming. Guys, get over there and take a look. They're inexpensive, they look great on the table, and they really do match your army and take it to that next level. Also, while you're there, make sure that you take a look at their custom-made bolt-action figure cases. Custom-made for bolt-action? What's that all about? They have gone out of their way to take a look at 156 and 148 scale tanks and made trays to fit them. They also have infantry trays that fit within the cases. You pick what trays you want to put in those cases. There's also ones that hold support teams, 40 mil uh, rounds, 60 mil rounds, or even large ovals for those huge guns like those 88s that you might have. Guys, if you want to mix and match... They have a template that you can go onto online and make custom trays that fit your army. Not a generic army, your army with your models. You need to look at Stuff is great. There's also new stuff coming. So make sure you get down to Laser Touch and check out their range. It is changing, it is exciting, and they're brand new. Be the first in your group to have a set of custom trays and custom pin markers. Check them out. Hello team, this is Patch, and welcome to Patch's Pedestal. I've got something that's been bugging me, team. Not not overly bugging me, but it just that itch that you just can't scratch. And it's about people's behaviour online in regards to this hobby. Now, for the majority of people, the overwhelming majority of people that when on Facebook or online forums are so very encouraging of other people in this hobby, let's face it, very few of us get paid to do this and you know, we all do it for the love of the hobby and we, li- you know, we like to get along with others and play games. It just seems to be a, a very small element of people that pop up from time to time who, who seem to feel it necessary to belittle others for some sort of self-satisfaction perhaps or to let everyone know a superior knowledge that they may contain um, and do it in such a way as to make people feel like they're not welcome in the hobby. Um, and this is, we see this us here at BoldAction.net and uh, the Ghost Army podcast, of course, we put ourselves out there 
And there are times where we get things wrong. Or <laughs> really? It, yeah, potentially you a lot never of get times stuff we get wrong. things wrong. Yeah. But we always premise what we talk about in that we like to talk about talk about talk about the about the whole. And we all agree that history is amazing, and mm-hmm. none of us are real textbook people in the sense that we love to play the game. We love the game for what it is. We talk about our history in context of the game itself and how we can take amazing points of history within time and, and mate, turn it into a game of bold action. And we do cop a, a fair bit of criticism from time to time in regard to these types of things. And we can, we got big shoulders and we can cop that. But what we see is people sometimes putting things on Facebook, for example, asking for advice. And uh majority of people get on and say, hey, you do it this way or you can try this method and it's really encouraging. Yeah. But it only really takes those one or two people to get on and say nasty things and it can really turn off that person from feeling welcome within the hobby. And they could walk away going, well, gee, I tried but my shade of green was the wrong shade and now I'm being laughed at. So what I'd like to say uh, is to... When people are thinking about posting online or they're thinking about replying to a comment or general things, just do a nice simple test and, you know, would this person take offense to that? If they would, yeah. don't do it. It's a, it's a hobby. Be encouraging. What do you guys think? Yeah, man. Um, and if you mind if I jump on this one? Yeah, sure. All right. Look, uh, Grandma Baker, my grandmother, 101, lives on a farm in Iowa by herself, is by all intents and purposes my hero. She is. She has had many great, you know, grandma isms that I've grown up with, and one of her big famous ones. And I know it's one that most of you have heard before. It's cliche, but she uses it as a daily moniker. And as a result, I actually have this written on the wall in my classroom: treat other people like you want to be treated yourselves. And though I mean, sometimes we say things online that. We may not, you know, may come across more aggressive than we mean or may come across in a, in a manner we don't want. Um, look, guys, you want to treat other people like you want to be treated yourself. It's just it's common courtesy. Um, you know, if you didn't know something and you were reaching out and you wanted some help, you would want somebody to help you. Uh, at least I do. I'm, I'm always putting questions up online. Uh, and it's just, I think it's important that we just keep that in mind. I can think of at least two people who, since Bolt Action came out, um, tried to enter into the community. Um, one person made uh, painted up a few things and put them up and didn't get a very nice comment. It kind of pushed them away for a bit. But the other one um, didn't even get to that. Posted online, said, hey guys, I'm new to the game. And because he didn't know, I don't know, the terminology... He um, threw out the term neckbeard, for example. Now, I know on other podcasts, some of which I'm a part of, um, you know, that term's thrown around loosely, and some people don't like it. Um, Well, the response to his playful, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'd like to, you know, become part of this community, was he was absolutely, he got not only grilled online, but he was then personally messaged on Facebook, through Facebook, really aggressively. Um, and it drove him away for good. He's never come back, which is a real shame because he's, he's one of these great players that builds community that just, you know, is it's just a wonderful guy to have around. 
And, you know, it, it's it's too bad that stuff like that happens. Maybe. I mean, it, it really, I don't think, was too big a step for someone to see that he was new and educate him and say, you know what? You know, neckbeard isn't a term that I find appropriate for this. Maybe you should not use it. In fact, maybe you should do it because of this. And it would have, he would have been educated. He wouldn't have taken that the wrong way. And, you know, he would be playing bolt action today. Our community That's right, would yeah. be better. That's right. Look, there, there's room for uh, in our community. It's as is going back to the fact this is a hobby that we all enjoy, and we should be welcoming of of everyone that wants to play. Sure, not everyone's going to play the same style as you, but at no point are you forced to play that person. Um, you can develop your own style. You can use whatever rules you want. We're all playing bold action and. Most people play it within the confines of their own groups or their own regional areas, geographical locations. So what's happening here in Australia, for example, is not a huge concern that it should require some sort of uh, animosity online, for example, from someone in the UK or Europe or US. And, and we see this, you know, like you're ruining my game. Hang on a minute, dude. As far as I can see, you're in Russia <laughs> and I'm in Australia, how could mm-hmm. I possibly ruin your game by misinterpreting a recce rule or by painting my um, Africa core a slightly different shade of bone? Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, look, it, it, what I'm getting at is there's, there's lots of room for everyone in the hobby. There's no reason why anyone should be bagging anyone else out um, and just accept a lot of people. There, We get that gamers tend to be very emotional because they get very involved with their hobby. They, they, they really buy into this hobby. It becomes so much a part of themselves and they get very emotional. Some gamers are very fragile with their egos in that they see any challenge to their particular way that they view the game as some sort of personal insult and they lash out and they like to direct the game the way they want to go. Look, we get that. <laughs> if you find yourself getting really worked up about something to do with bold action, where you're becoming emotionally, you're getting anxious, you're starting to get vent and your angry eyes and you're starting to smash buttons on your keyboard, you just got to take a chill pill, take a step back, go and watch a bit of Oprah You'll feel better. I think Oprah's off, so maybe Dr. Phil or something. You'll feel yeah. better. Come back in a day and think about what you're writing. And don't be a douche. That's yeah. pretty much what i got to say. What are you reckon, Anf? Yeah, I think you guys hit the nail on the head, so I don't really have much more to add on that. I, Excellent. I, I want to go back to one thing I said. I know I used the example of, um, you know, I don't want people to walk away saying, oh, Brad said something about neckbeards, blah, blah, blah. Look, man, I, I know I said some things on the last LRDG that weren't exactly complimentary to power gamers, the other extreme, um, and power creep. And, I, and look, I'm as guilty as anyone else as getting emotional about um, the game I play. I mean, as you said, Patch, we spend a lot of time and, you know, we invest our time, we invest our love, we invest our money in this hobby. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen games go down paths that I don't like the direction it went. And um, it's very easy to, you know, make some knee-jerk comment. But it is important that if you do make some sort of emotional, um, I don't know, outburst that you um, and you realize it later that you're, uh, I don't know, grown up enough to say, you know what, 
I didn't do that right. And, I mean, I just did that. So, and I'll say it again. In the last episode of the LRDG, I was out of line. I was upset. Uh, I was more upset at the co- my co-host for uh, intentionally trying to bait me. Uh, and I said some things that were not appropriate and weren't fair. So, yeah. But we're we're all about being positive, aren't we? So yeah. you know we're we're here. Uh, enough of enough of Patch's pedestal. I can step down off it now, and um, and we can get back into talking about the game we love. So I do Brad, like I was, the size of your soapbox there, Patch. It's nice. It's, it's, it's not nice a bad to stand one. Right? On. It's a nice podium. Yeah. I can I can, I can see I can see down. I can look down at a lot of people and see a long distance from my pedestal. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get back into talking about bolt action and and nice. Brad. You spoke, didn't you, about what you're running at CanCon? I did. Very excited. And as of now, for those of you who have been listening to this podcast, this is um, not a week later, but a few days later from the last time we recorded. Um, And I, since the last podcast, as of today, I have finished painting my army for CanCon, and I am ready to go. So I am very excited um, and I have to say, I am super excited about my Black Art Bombard. Um, I, yeah. I, yeah, very I good. I scratch built one. Uh, an article will be on the website soon. Man. Uh, looks I look awesome. down on the table and I just think, wow, I can't wait to fire that at some bros. Uh, I don't know if it's going to do anything. Uh, I am just really excited to see it. Can you um, go through what, it, what its stats are? Yeah, it's, um, it's a 24-inch... Um, direct firing fixed team weapon that is D6 HE. Wow. And causes, I think it cause, only causes one pin though. Okay. Um, but it's either but that surely, or it's an surely. armor pen of one or something. Yeah, it's it's not great D6. against vehicles. No, it would probably D6 use the same pins. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's D2. D6. It's, yeah. So it's D6 HE. Uh, I don't no, actually D, have the D2 book pins. in front of me, but yeah, it is a 24-inch D6 HE weapon. Uh, so you definitely can't I, fire I, indirect. Uh, my, I'm not sure if you can fire it indirect. I was just firing it directly in the game I played. Um, I played a game with it. I fired it twice, missed both times, and then it was executed. But it didn't have a full paint job, so you know one expects that to happen. Um, I have to say, the more I play with it, and I know I've talked about it in this episode, but the more I like the Lee, oh my god, is that thing amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely direct fire only. Okay. Okay, it's direct fire I'm only. Looking at, the, looking at the book now. But one thing I didn't realize when we recorded earlier, though, um, and I wanted to clarify, the Lee, I said it has three tiers of weapons. It's got the medium AT gun in the hull, it's got the light AT gun in a turret, and it's got an MMG in a little turret on top of the other turret. What I didn't realize, and one of you said, I think it was Anthony, and I corrected you, and then I was wrong, um, is it has a coax MMG next to the light MMG or next to the light AT gun. So, yeah, that that's even better. I didn't even realize it has more guns. So, that's a lot um, of weapons. Yeah, because sometimes you know you want to fire that light AT gun. I've been firing it a lot at veterans, and it's great. D two, you know, take two off. Have a nice day. Um, I've been still ugly as sin. It. Oh yeah, it's it's it hit every branch in the ugly tree on the way going down, and uh, you know what? I love it. It's a beast. So anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, 
Yeah, so the Sikhs uh, have definitely been something that I've been interested in. And just to go back, um, in the last episode, we did a, a fairly in-depth discussion of Monte Cassino. And we had a lot of really good feedback from you guys um, listening. Uh, a lot of people said they would have liked to have seen us talk about Indian regiments. A lot of people said they wanted to see us talk about maybe some alternate formations. And I know at least two people said they wanted to hear about the Maori troops that were there. Because as we talked about in the last episode, in the Battle of Monte Cassino, um, the Allied forces were some of the most eclectic that you know were seen anywhere. I mean, there were just Commonwealth troops from all over the place. Um, there was U.S. forces. I mean, French forces. I mean, we had, we had French colonial troops. All sorts of craziness was all in one fighting force that fought in different parts of this battle. Um, guy, Anthony, did you want to go first? Since um, yeah, you did. Yeah, uh, the yeah. Maori guys. Yeah, sure. So I was going to talk about the 28th Maori Battalion. Mm-hmm. So they were at Monte Cassino. The 28th Maori Battalion was actually part of the 2nd New Zealand Division, and it consisted of four rifle companies and a HQ company. Uh, it was entirely made up of volunteers, and each rifle company was actually taken from a certain region in New Zealand amongst the different Maori tribes. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, a company was all up from the north Northland of the top, uh, North Island. And then, so the battalion fought during uh, Greece, North Africa, and Italian campaigns. And so by the time they got to Monte Cassino, they were, yeah, pretty, pretty much veterans, having fought all the way through. And they had a pretty formidable reputation from both the Allied and German commanders. They were, yeah, given a lot of respect for being such good fighters. And then... Well, of all the battles that actually they fought in, uh, Monte Cassino was the most costly for the battalion, actually. Uh, they end up losing, I forget the exact numbers, but it was like 40% of their people, something like that. Ooh. It was massive, massive casualties during Monte Cassino. So they got there and they fought during the second battle of Monte Cassino, and they were tasked with attacking the town's railway station. And they managed to actually capture it, but then the supporting tanks that were supposed to come and reinforce them never made it there. So they managed to hold on for nearly a whole day before an enemy tank platoon, or sorry, counterattack, knocked them off out of the station. Mm-hmm. So that kind of colours the way I've picked my list because obviously they didn't have the required any tank. So to keep my 1,250-point Maori list... Uh, historical, I'm severely lacking in anti-tank. So, so, I've picked, so are you, how are you building your list around that then, I guess? Uh, pretty much, I'm just going to hopefully not have to deal with a lot of tanks. <laughs> just ignore them. <laughs> just ignore them. <laughs> pretty much. They've, they've got a few means to deal with it, but yeah, I'm pretty much just hoping not to have to go up against a tank company. Because nice. I couldn't, I couldn't see any way of working around because that is literally how they were pushed back. That stopped them achieving their objectives. Yeah, did they have piats or I mean, uh, I didn't find any reference of it. I wouldn't be surprised if they did, but I don't know. So my twelve hundred and fifty point list starts off with the first lieutenant 
and sorry, a veteran first lieutenant and a veteran second lieutenant, both with an extra guy. So I'm going two platoons. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously going to be veteran heavy because they were veterans by the time they got it early. Yeah. And to represent the Marys being such tough fighters, I'm actually going to use the commando sections as my general squads. So they have tough fighter. All right. So I have four sections of seven commandos, each with three SMGs. And then I've got another two sections of seven commandos, each with an LMG to give some covering fire to the assault squads. Mm-hmm. So, so all up, that's six squads of seven veterans with tough fighter. And then both of the Maori assaults during Mono Casino were preceded by artillery barrages. So mm-hmm. obviously you get the free British artillery observer mm-hmm. and I've added an extra guy. And then I've taken an extra veteran artillery observer uh, but he's just by himself because I ran out of points to give him a friend. <laughs> yep. I figure being a veteran, he can try and hide and stay alive. Mm-hmm. And then, so for support units, I've got a veteran MMG, two veteran medium mortars with spotters, mm-hmm. and a veteran sniper team. So all up, that's 1,250 points. It's 14 order dice. And so the main way of dealing with enemy armor they've got is basically the dual artillery observers to try and pin it out yeah. or getting lucky hits with the medium mortars. And it was two medium mortars, right? Yeah, two medium mortars. Yeah. Well, if so you, you got a little bit, but not yeah, a lot. If you throw, but if you throw pins down on an armored vehicle like that and then you start to hit them with things like the medium mortar, then you can really start to add up some of those pins. Um and that's, I mean, at Field of Dreams last year, I took a Tiger, and it was pinned out completely twice, and that was how people dealt with it. And in one of those games, I got hit with Artie, and that's what put a bunch of pins on, and then they just piled pin, pin, pin in a row. And I know once the mortar got ranged in, it was just D2 pins every turn until it was gone. So that's actually, that's not a bad tactic at all. Yeah, and we've all heard from the early days of the LRDG about Dave's twin artillery observer list mm-hmm. how, and how nasty that can be. So, Yeah, it de- I mean, that definitely can work. Do you mind if I ask a rather controversial question? Um, I noticed that you said you went with the commandos. Um, which national rule were you going to use? Because the British, British have variable. Yeah, I also forgot that. Uh, I went in with the blood-curdling charge. That is a good because one. I think that would be fitting. I just picture them doing the haka before they charge into the Forshamiega positions in the town. Oh yeah, perfect. Yeah, absolutely it's perfect. Just saying that the the blood curling charge is the one where it precludes even if the unit has not shot or acted that turn. If you with that rule and you assault them, they still cannot return fire prior to the assault. Right. Yeah. No. No defensive fire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever stood next to people doing a haka, that's the sort of New Zealand war dance um, if you aren't from this neck of the woods. Because I know I didn't know what a haka was until I came to Australia. Um, it was, yeah, it's it's really intimidating. And I think that rule perfectly reflects what it's like to okay. see that up front. Yeah. As I say, for our fans that don't know what a haka is, just YouTube All Blacks Haka. Mm. It's spelled H-A-K-A and you're... We'll see why it's quite intimidating. Yeah. 
Yeah, I got. A, I had a friend in the U.S. send me messages the, uh, just a couple of weeks ago saying, "Did you know that the New Zealand, you know, rugby teams called the All Blacks? How cool is that?" And I went, "Yeah, in fact, all of their teams are called the All Blacks, except for the cricket team, which is weirdly the All Whites." So, um, yep. yeah. Um, <laughs> just to go back to what I was saying earlier, though, um, don't you think? I mean, you're running veteran squads with three SMGs. Now, I know that you wanted to get the tough fighter rule in there to reflect these bros being veterans. Wouldn't the entry for late war um, veterans do the same thing? Um, because it gives you, still gives you the three SMGs. It's the only regular you know, guys squad that allows you to take up to three. Um, and you may then have a couple more points to play around with to get, I don't know, an observer somewhere or something else. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just bizarre. I know, I know I've played a couple tournaments now where I've played against Commonwealth forces, and they've said, oh, yeah, I've got Gurkhas. And you look down on the table and think, that's funny. Those look a lot like paratroops. Um, you see what I'm saying? What do you guys think about that? I just think uh, Tough Fighter was quite appropriate for the Maoris. Um, I forgot with the SMGs, I uh, know in Africa at least, they were well known for managing to find a lot of extra equipment. Mm. So they are actually well known for having a lot of SMGs in their squads because they kept pilfering them from other people. Yeah. So well, that's I was why just saying three you... SMGs. But the Tough Fighter, I think, just suits the Maoris a lot. And I mean, the list you're lacking against anti-tank and that so i don't see it as being too cheesy to take a bunch of tough fighters oh, yeah, i think I'm that sort saying, of balances it out yeah i'm not saying tough fighter is cheesy and i just was thinking what would yeah again what entry directly reflects what it is just making yeah. conversation um Pat, think, what do you yeah. think about that yeah look it's a it's a really i'm obviously a heavy infantry list which will suffer if those vehicles can get through and start hitting your squads um i'm wondering if a Rather than the second artillery observer, which I really like, by the way, I think yeah. it's got good synergy with your troops, is potentially like an air observer to replace that. So at least you've got that dedicated almost, you know, chances are of, of rolling some sort of air attack on a hate, like an AT attack on some tanks, which could, you know, if you pin, for example, uh, on an artillery strike and then immediately come in with your air, you could potentially really start... Um, are taking out some of that armor. So I feel yeah. what's, yeah, what's take... he... Yeah, and, and it wouldn't be that unhistorical in, in relation to your theme because there was still quite a significant amount of air support around Casino for the Allies, wasn't there? Yeah, there definitely was. Mm. The, well, uh, both well, On both sides, they both yeah. had a ton. It's just an option, I think. You know, you, you could go either way with it. Yeah. What, do, what do you think about the air? Yeah, that could definitely be a possible change. Change out the veteran artillery for a veteran air, and then you've got mm. enough points to give him a friend as well. Yeah, because it's only and 75 like said, points, yeah. Yeah, and then you've got like that ability to deal with uh, veterans do 42 or the veteran mm. Sherman, how it's a tank. It's yeah, going to yeah, wreck true squads. True, and I mean, the Allies did you know level <laughs> the cities, and the yeah the monastery and everything using air so that yeah that would be absolutely historical so yeah yeah I find the um I find use of the, like things such as your your commandos um in conjunction with blood curling charge I think that's that's perfectly fine because warlord with the the books of course made the Commonwealth forces very generic 
you know, there's no listing for Sikhs. There's no listing for the New Zealand forces and there's no listing for Australian forces. They've just given us this option to say, roll with whatever you want um, that you yeah. think is suitable. And I think it, it, you've certainly sold the case. The Maoris were well known as, as being very tough, um, coming from a very tough warrior background. And to me, they would certainly be tough fighters. You wouldn't want to get in close combat with them. And then um, the blood-curling charge with that harker, and they no doubt would have been screaming on the way in. Um, I think that's you've, you've perfectly sold their use of those, those rules. I definitely think they should be able to get tough fighter compared to the... Fifty percent of Soviet units that can all have tough fighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, don't get me started on the Soviet book. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, and I know you're a uh, Soviet fanatic, so I know we don't need to get you to go on about it too. Um, so, Amber, are you happy with um, that sort of wrap up with um, the Maori stuff? Yeah, cool. So, like I said, it, it's going to struggle against tanks, but. You know, if you want to try and run, I find if you want to run a theme list, you've got to keep to the theme, even if mm. you just have to try and think of creative ways to deal with it during the game. Go for the objectives, try and ignore the armor, whatever. Yeah. There's no point taking a theme list and then dropping the theme to take in some big anti tank gun or a tank to cover your own ass. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, if you don't mind, Patch, I'll continue on from that. Um, I, th- there were two Indian divisions that fought in Monte Cassino. Um, the 4th Indian Division actually fought alongside... They arrived alongside the 2nd New Zealand Division, and they spent a lot of time fighting, you know, the 1st Falsham Jaeger Division, um, you know, up around some of the hills like Castle Hill and Snake's Head Ridge and all of these things. Um, the Gurkhas were attached to these units, and I know I've talked about the Gurkhas before, but how they sort of snuck off in the middle of the night and started attacking people. They were part of the Indian divisions. And the 8th um, fought through um, along part of the British 8th Army um, up through the Adriatic coastline. So there's, like the New Zealand um, regiments that Anthony, or units that Anthony was just talking about, uh, the Indian units that were fighting were made up of a lot of Sikh and Gurkha fighters. They had had a lot of combat experience by the time Monte Cassino rolled around. And, yeah, they were absolutely, you know, they were tough customers. Uh, They knew what they were doing. Um, And they had something like 50,000 Indian troops in and around Italy during this section of the war. And up to half of them... I've read in a couple places, um, became casualties. Um, they suffered horrific casualties um, earlier on. And that, this isn't the case because earlier on in the war, there was a lot of sort of British m- mismanagement by um, sort of English troops. Um, sorry, leaders mismanaging Indian troops. At this point, the Indians were sort of seen as really, you know, tough customers, so they were getting some respect, and it was all working out for them. Um, so, because of that, they were they had done a lot of fighting in mountains, they'd done a lot of fighting around rivers, um, they were really into the rough terrain fighting, uh, and part of that was, um, you know, you could, if you wanted to build a list, you could go a whole bunch of different ways, mainly because I'm obsessed with that ugly little armored car, the Indian carrier. Um, I went with something they were also known for, which was um, 
you know, reconnaissance. Um, they did have access to a lot of universal carriers. And they had a lot of access to Indian carriers. Um, and, yeah, they would go out and, you know, scout around. So in my mind, I was thinking building a list around a platoon or two, um, re- two reinforced platoons maybe, where you have a leader, um, maybe another guy, in a Tilly um, staff car, which is essentially a Jeep or a Jeep, uh, and just sort of drive around with those guys, um, providing you know leadership bonuses where needed, I suppose. They can jump out and help people rally. Um, and then you have a bunch of Indian carriers, so a bunch of five-man squads in Indian carriers. I was thinking regular, um, probably more veteran, though, um, and then take a selection. Indian carries come standard with one LMG in forward hull, but you can replace that with the anti-tank rifle, or you can also add a light machine gun in the turret. Um, as we talked about before, when I play with my seek list, I'm running around with a bunch of them sort of side by side. And so just taking that and sort of blowing it up even bigger, so maybe taking six Indian carrier squads, so roll them in three, you know, three by three or three groups of two and just throw pins everywhere. Um, as Anthony was saying, the, the British do get an artillery observer. And in some lists, you do feel funny that, oh, maybe this doesn't reflect um, the battle. Um, like maybe commandos raiding, you know, off of a German coast. They may not have, you know, some sort of artillery support available to them. But at Monte Cassino, they definitely did. So, you know, just having that ability, you know, you have these recce units running forward, seeing the enemy, calling down an airstrike, and then zipping back. Um, I also was doing some research. Um, Indian units used hum... I always say humbler, but they're... Humber? Humber armored cars. Um, So maybe take a couple of those. And I know they were more used... I believe in the desert, um, but taking a Stuart tank as a recce tank that removes the turret. Um, so take maybe a late war Stuart, um, and it replaces the turret with an HMG, um, mainly because um, because they were doing a lot of mountain fighting. They needed more tracked vehicles. Um, I mean, the armored cars were good about sort of zipping around in some of these places. But I was trying to think, how could I get away with this without the obligatory? Because we see a lot of trucks and lists down here, and I'm assuming in a lot of other places. So how could you build a fast list without trucks, um, I guess was my mentality. Uh, and, yeah, that's, that's where I was going. Just going with sort of spamming speed, fast units. Um, sure, it doesn't have a ton of AT, but you'd have you know maybe an HMG. Um, the Humbers have light anti-tank guns, and you know if you take a few ATRs, anti-tank rifles on the Indian carriers, that can take care of that. And man, you're going to have enough anti-personnel shooting till the cow come home just to pin things out. Um, you know, pick one part of the battle, focus your force on it, redeploy um, in a way that your opponents, you know, you're never facing your opponent's whole army at once. Otherwise, with a list like that, you will lose. Um, and as, you know, Indian carriers blow up as they do, or if guys get stuck pinned in them, 
um, that's when you zip up with your lieutenants to jump out and give those leadership bonuses to help them get them moving again. Um, anyway, that's that's where I was thinking list-wise. Um, and as far as what you were saying with the national rule, um, I think the same national rule applies to the Sikhs um, or maybe tough as boots because they did have a reputation as being great in hand-to-hand combat, um, and it just gives them a couple bonus hand-to-hand combat attacks. So anyway, that's where I'm at. What do you guys think? Yeah, I like it. I like it. I think it's a lot like your actual CanCon Seek list. Like, using that speed lets you decide where the battle's going to be fought. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the, so mo- the get- mobility. Sorry, the, the mo- mobility is... Um, with with so much mobility in your list, it's not something that we see very often. And I think I said it before, it'll really put people off. How do I, how do I deal with this? So I like it. The only thing with the um, tougher boot, tough as boots, is if you're going to have small units, it's not really going to help you much, is it? If you've got like five man units to fit in the Indian carriers, no, you're only getting one extra attack. I agree, it's not, it's not optimal whatsoever. Um, but I kind of like that it isn't. Um, it just it gives my guys, you know, an attack or two extra depending on the size of the unit. In this case, most of them, since they're all going to be in Indian carriers. Because for every three guys, you get plus one attack in hand-to-hand combat. Um, so it would give a unit of five guys six attacks. Or seven attacks if you put an SMG on the, one of the guys. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, in the squad. And I think that might work um, as cleanup. Uh, I've played a few games with my Seeks now. And while, you know, five-man squads with one SMG and tough as boots don't look like they do much... After you've put quite a few pins on somebody um, and you just ro- you roll up and jump out and shoot them, if you can cause a few um, casualties, they fail a leadership test, they run, or if they're really just down to almost nothing and you need to clear an objective, you know, that, that's not a bad option to assault in. Get you know six, seven attacks on somebody and then wipe them and, yeah, run. Hey, I guess... Hey. I get. I was going to say. I guess that's another good uh, point, though. If whoever you're charging is going to have a whole bunch of pins on them, you're not really worried about defensive fire anyway. That's true. But and the other thing is, on sixes to hit you. Yeah, if you're able to hit and put a bunch of pins on somebody, but not kill a lot of guys. I played a veteran uh, Falschenjäger army the other day, and um, there were a few units that I I literally got seven pins on. Um, yeah. and, but they still had what, five guys, one of them did. And I, no way I was going to assault five veteran Falschermager with assault rifles. Um, so I hit them with a couple other things and then I assaulted them once they got down to what, three guys. Uh, and that, you know, worked beautifully because they had so many pins on them. I could stand almost next to them with minimal risk of them. Then, you know, for example, passing a, a run test to charge me. So... Yeah. Mm, can I just um, digress for a second? I, yeah. It just reminded me about, I had a game last night, and I used my America, American um, ruled French, late mm-hmm. war French versus some Germans, and uh, I had this amazing battle plan of rolling up my half track, which had a, a, an eight-man squad of effectively US, right, regular soldiers, mm-hmm. two BARs, an SMG, and five rifles. And uh, they all jumped out of the half-track, and there was an MMG team, German MMG team right there. Yep. 
and German MMG teams are certainly a threat, right? So you want to neutralize them. You don't want those dice coming out at you all the time. So I thought, I'm just going to nail this, right? 11 shots, point blank range. Mm-hmm. So twos to hit, right? Because you're that close. Oh, yeah. No mover penalties. I hit, I think it was nine times. Yeah. Nine hits on a three-man squad. Nine dice, three and under. Yeah. Not a, not a single kill. <laughs> not, not a single kill for a regular MMG team after being hit nine times. Wow. Yeah, that, that I think that's what we say uh, in the business. Bolt, bolt action, bolt action happened. happened. I, I just, you know those moments when you're playing a game and you've just, you know, you've moved your troops, you're thinking you're pretty smart, you rock up, everything's going well for you, and then you roll those dots. Bias, and there's all these ones and twos pointing at you, yep. and you and you're searching through, going, "There's got to be one. There's got to be one," and and your opponent is just sort of giggling, and you're going, yeah. "Not a one, not a single sausage." <laughs> just wait, just yell Yahtzee and quickly pick up the dice before they can see them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we had a bit of a giggle about that, and, and as as bold action is true, the the very next round they got taken out by a like an MMG on a half track, so. It was this really weird situation. Um, but, but Brad, if you don't mind, that segues into something that I'll talk about. Please. The Italian campaign. Yeah. Um, so the Americans clearly played a, a pretty massive part in that campaign. Um, and, and what I decided to do was to talk about an armoured platoon, an actual tank platoon in the mix of this. Everyone's been putting through the reinforced infantry platoons. And I thought I might bring up just a... A, uh, a tank platoon. Um, I know in the US they're certainly playing tournaments where they're mixing up the tank and the reinforced infantry platoons. Mm-hmm. And I thought in this context, well, you know, let's, we both, we've listened to what you guys had to say and I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if you came up against my list and how, how you would deal with it. So before I go into the list, I'll just have a quick, um, a quick chat about the US first armored division. Um, which are known as Old Ironsides. Um, they had the first combat operations during Operation Torch in North Africa on 8th of November 1942 and were the first American armoured division to see combat. Uh, with the fall of Sicily in the summer of 1943, it cleared the way for an Allied invasion of the Italian mainland. As part of General Mark Clark's 5th Army, the 1st Armoured Division crushed enemy resistance in an assault landing at Salerno on September 9 and led the drive to Naples. The city fell on October 1st and the Allies pressed onto the Volturno River. In November, the 1st Armoured Division attacked the infamous Winter Line. Although breaching the line, the Allied advance came to a halt in the mountainous country near Casino. To break the stalemate, the Allies made an amphibious assault well behind enemy lines at Anzio, on January 23, 1944, beating back repeated German counterattacks. The 1st Armoured Division led the Allied breakout from the beachhead on May 23 and spearheaded the drive to Rome, liberating the city on June 4. The 1st Armoured Division continued its pursuit of the enemy to the North Appiens, where the Germans made their last stand. Rugged mountains and winter weather now stood between the Allies and the open land of the Po Valley. The 1st Armoured Division broke into the valley on April 1945 and on May 2, 1945, the German forces in Italy surrendered. So the US 1st Armoured Division was right in the thick of it from, yeah. from day dot. So 
I, I've developed this this tank platoon, and look, I've only played a couple of tank games. I'm not that skilled in building lists that maybe smash, but I thought let's just see how I go. And um, I always thought how it probably would work is the same types of vehicles and maximising the use of the I think it's the radio network with the plus one for the same type of vehicles with three of them. I've gone with a um, the commander being in a, a 75 millimeter Sherman. Just very simple. It's got the turret-mounted medium anti-tank gun um, with the HE D6. Uh, it's just regular, so mm-hmm. the standard standard M4. Um, instead of going for a pintle-mounted HMG, however, I've gone for a pintle-mounted MMG. Mm-hmm. So I think having played a few games now, the HMG is really great for taking out, you know, for that plus one pen. But I find an MMG with that extra die seems to do a lot more against infantry. That's what I... I find the HMG primarily shooting against infantry. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'm going to make them all three standard vehicles, all the M4 Sherman uh, with a 75mm, all with uh, pintle-mounted MMG. So they've got the, the... the What's that? Three firing platforms per vehicle. So the whole... So good, yeah. Yeah, the whole MMG, the uh, medium anti-tank slash light howitzer, main gun and then the pintle mounted MMG so as well as it's got the coaxial MMG so technically you can have three MMGs firing should the the targets present themselves so with that the command special rule it gets an extra plus one so all vehicles now um, or the commander gets is it plus two amp do you know if that's right yeah with the radio network it gives you an extra plus one yeah so you're doing pretty well at plus two. Regular troops at plus two, so you're rolling ten straight up to get them moving. Now, with that sort of armoured fist like it is, there's three medium tanks you've got to deal with straight off the bat. Um, right. It's a lot of firepower. So if you're coming up against an infantry list like um, the Maoris or even the Sikhs with your light vehicles, that's a lot of firepower coming down range. You know, if you think about those three vehicles, how they can put out what effectively... Oh, what's a HE, a D6 is two pins. So, you know, if you look D2. at lots of, yeah, D2 pins plus pins for the MMGs, you're going to be pretty much shutting down units if you focus on only one or two per turn just for pins. Absolutely. Yeah, so your both those lists that you had probably aren't doing a huge amount against these guys, particularly, you know, you're rolling armor nine front end, and even if you've got light anti-tank guns, you've you got to get close, right? Because over half range, they're only plus three pen. Um, so you're not even penetrating, you're just doing glancing blows. So backing up those three tanks, so clearly they're going to clear the way for me, uh, are three regular squads of eight men. Uh, the NCO's got a submachine gun. You've got uh, one BAR and six rifles. So these are the infantry support that are there to you know, um, keep the enemy infantry from getting too close to the tanks and mm-hmm. to support the tanks. Uh and they're led by a second lieutenant. So they're going to get their own little boost and they can operate as an independent team. Now, I've thrown in an Air Force Forward Observer. Probably, you know, you look at it and you go, oh, gee, an Air Force Forward Observer using US rules, so I get two strikes. Um, and that could really be a case of you bring that aircraft in early, pin down um, any sort of real anti-tank capabilities that the enemy may have. So any anti-tank guns or, or the big howitzers or um, anything like that, we can bring that in. Um, hopefully it will actually hit. 
and not hit our own troops because that could be really devastating. Yeah. Um, and then I've got to transport all my infantry. So I've got a, a jeep for the lieutenant. Um, it's got no weapons or anything. It's just a jeep. It's going to it's going to travel him around. Um, I've got an M3 half track with a, the pinnel mounted HMG, mm-hmm. and I've just got two Dodge three quarter ton trucks. Um, so you know, a squad in each of the trucks, a squad in the half track, and the lieutenant in the jeep um, with the Air Force Field Observer. You've yeah. now got um, a very very highly mobile force. So similar to what you're doing with your Sikhs, my entire force can move very far very fast um, and really you know if you think about those three Shermans for example just punching up a flank and behind them are the trucks and the, the you know being protected by them and then swinging in um, and really disrupting an enemy force in the middle of the table I mean that's a lot of firepower coming at you um, how, how do you both think you'd go get like if there was a mixed tank platoon and um reinforced infantry how do you think you'd go well i mean well anthony why don't you go first i have a lot of opinions on this all right sure well my strategy if i was using my marys would be quite easy i'd just give you rigged dice and when you roll ones for your <laughs> artillery for your airstrikes there's there's two dead shermans yep yep there you go yep. and a third <laughs> pinned out one yeah no literally um i'd probably have to just use hard cover and stuff like that the only thing I want I would say is um, MMGs can be quite deceptive on killing veterans. Mm. It can be actually quite hard. I remember at CanCon, Lachlan opening up on a unit of my uh, Soviet scouts with two of those little Italian tanks rocking like three or four MMGs each. Mm. So he rolled like, I think it was a good 30 MMG shots <laughs> at one unit and he killed like one scout. Yeah. So... Like, veterans can be quite hard to kill when they're in cover with an MMG because it doesn't have that plus to pen or anything like that. So depends on what you're coming up with those three Shermans. Sometimes, yeah, they're not actually going to remove a lot. They can do the pins, but you might actually find it quite hard to remove veteran infantry in large numbers. Yeah, for sure. I think I think most definitely, if you're looking at veteran infantry, is is getting up really close with that D6 howitzer. Yeah, um, now that's still gonna that's gonna help, obviously the D six. Yeah, absolutely. He. I mean, you're combining. But I still think. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So, uh, I was just gonna say, I my best bet with the Maoris would just be to try and outlast you with the number of veteran bodies I've got on the table. Really. Yeah, I should I should have stated it's only um, twelve order dice, so it, it's not a huge order dice, and I think it would struggle potentially against. Um, like a, a tank platoon list that had a significant amount of smaller, more armoured car type vehicles where it could mm-hmm. pack, say, five or six vehicles in there uh, for less. Because each one of those Shermans is 200 points. I definitely well, think it's a good, strong, balanced list, though. Yeah, it should be pretty versatile, I think. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're combining is, in my opinion, one of the better tanks in the game. Um, it's a medium tank. But it, as you say, it's got three weapon systems that can fire three different targets, um, one of which throws out D6 HE, which isn't huge HE, but by the same token, it adds up. Uh, and you're backing it up with arguably the best basic in- infantry in the game. Um, throw a couple vehicles on there to make it mobile. Uh, yeah, uh, trucks, I like it. I like it a lot. Mm. Um, and that's 1,250 points, right? Yes. Um, 
I was actually talking with some of the guys um, a little while ago, and I was talking about a list that was actually very similar to that. Um, it was a thousand points though, and it wasn't an armored platoon. Um, when Tank Wars was a rumor ages ago, I got three Shermans that I have yet to even pull out of the box, um, and was kicking around how could I ever use three Shermans, um, given that I don't tend to play Tank War games, only because I don't have really very many people here to play them with. Uh, and then that got me thinking, well, could you run three Shermans in a regular list? Um, and then that got me looking at the North Africa selector, um, the very first theater selector in the American book. Um, Operation Torch, I think Yeah, it Operation is. Torch. Yep, that's absolutely right. And everything in it is inexperienced um, except for the vehicles. So that got me thinking, well, if I ran three regular Shermans, that would require three platoons. Well, if I ran three platoons of guys, I could run three inexperienced lieutenants, each with a friend, and three five-man, sorry, and six five-man inexperienced squads. So I'd only have nine squads outside of the Sherman. I'd also be at 1,200 points, but I'd only, I'm sorry, I'd only be at 12 order dice as well, three for the tanks, six for the infantry, three for the lieutenants. And those infantry would be god-awful. Um, you know, six-man inexperienced squads, sorry, five-man inexperienced squads are just wretched. Um, they're just not going to do much. But that's when you sort of put a fist of three Shermans in people's faces at 1,000 points and pray and hug cover. Um, do I think this is a great list? No. Um, is it probably historic? Probably not. Um, but, yeah, when hearing your list made me think of that, and that was like, oh, well, that yeah, that could be interesting. Um, and I think um, the more that we play around with the idea of getting, you know, mixed infantry and armor, I mean, it really does. It really has changed the game, especially with the introduction, you know, the introduction of that, um, you know, does this weapon, can this weapon damage this tank? Well, then does it take a pin? Yeah. Th those rules really change the whole meta quite a bit. And when you're throwing around, you know, armor nine tanks at regular, they can just shrug off 50% of the time, shrug off an awful lot of pins. Or if you took mm. veterans, they'd be even better. But, Look, I, I could have upped the points and had a, a, a three veteran Shermans with, and then of course you're making best use of the the American rule, aren't you, with the gyro stabilizer? Um, yeah. And then you're you're in you're basically not vulnerable at all to any anything that can't penetrate you with a, so anything with plus three or less or no any ATRs or HMGs wouldn't be able to penetrate you at all, and um, it would be pretty brutal. You'd have I'd have to drop some of the other stuff, maybe the air observer. Um, to do that, but I thought you know regulars fine. I got no pro I got no problems yeah. running regulars. I'm quite happy with them. So look, Absolutely. it's a it's a different list. Um, could it be used? Yeah, I think it'd, I think I'd like to see uh, it, it us going that way in in Australia. I'd like to see a tournament um, really focusing on just see what you can come up with. Bring tank lists, bring infantry, make it at twelve fifty, and I think that's a great. Um, level to make best use of tanks and also to allow uh, reinforced infantry platoons to take some hate, uh, AT weapons. And um, let's see how we go. I mean, a lot of this has been theory hammer, hasn't it, about yeah. how devastating a tank list will be versus infantry. 
And um, I think I'd like to see some real good hard evidence as to how it actually does go. I mean, I, I'd like to, and I'll throw that out there, that my, all right, I'm going to say it, my early war French. Um, with their, it, yep. Yeah, with their free medium anti-tank gun or medium howitzer, can really start to pack in some serious AT for relatively cheap points. Um, and I think that could really, you know, come up against some pretty good uh, even late war stuff and still come out okay. So I'd like to give it a go. Maybe someone needs to run a tournament, perhaps in Canberra, perhaps, you know, perhaps this year. you. <laughs> perhaps <laughs> um, Winnicon. Yeah, something like that perhaps. You know, we could, we could maybe get that going. I'll have to talk to the, the punters in Canberra and see what they think. But, I mean, mm-hmm. let's give it a go. Considering I have more Hungarian tanks than infantry, I'm definitely down for an excuse yeah. to run some tanks. Oh, for sure. Wouldn't it be great? Like, who has really sat down, in all honesty, who has sat down with a reinforced infantry platoon at 1250 points and gone, this is going to be an infantry platoon which can really take on armour? Who does that? I mean, we're all going, why would you take an AT gun? Let's take a medium howitzer. Because you're always fighting other infantry. And the occasional vehicle. I reckon if you throw in um, the actual ability to be fighting full tankless, you'll be really scratching your head and taking things such as anti-tank grenades, which I've never taken in my life, Yeah. Um, but starting to attach them to squads so you can start assaulting tanks. I, I, I really like... Yeah, I, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I really like... I think it was Mark Dog who plays uh, some of their events where you can have one tank platoon and then as many infantry platoons as you want mm. in 1250. I think that would be nice. So you're That's still limited to the tanks. Yeah, so you're not going to spam, you know, nine vehicles or something on a table and just really destroy people. Yeah. I'd love, yeah. yeah. I mean, as we say, there's so much scope for people to run really neat events. Um, I mean, I know in the UK they're running tournaments where you show up to a table and the mission goes to the table. Not mm. like not everyone plays the same mission at the same time. That sounds interesting to me. I, I'm not sure I could see how that works. Or how that's more fair than everyone playing the same mission at the same time. But um, I think it would be really interesting to see. And those guys have obviously run it a few times at a few different tournaments. Um, yeah, I'd love to see something like that in operation. Uh, love to see, you know, just as, as you guys were saying, just putting boots on the table and trying things out. Um, mm. I think especially now that we're seeing these campaign books out, maybe move away from a tournament in the strict sense of the word and have sort of a campaign day where you come and yep. you play part of, you know, and maybe you play part of a side and you add up the, the points. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just changing the way we play. I and, think, uh, yeah. you know, one key thing that I got from our conversation with uh, Alessio a few podcasts back was you have to play games and you have to have hard evidence if you if you want to, say, steer the direction of the game or if you want to you know get on get on facebook or message alessio and say hey you need to change this um you need to actually have done it and you need to roll these tournaments through like there was a lot of panic and a lot of people screaming around with their arms in the in the air (laughs) when the suggestion of tank tank platoon and infantry platoons being in the same competition same tournament that was hmm it was pretty bad, wasn't it? There, people were just completely going nuts over it. But it had people never had been to change done. their armies. I mean, people don't yeah. like. Generally, people don't really like change. 
you know, a new edition comes out, people are always complaining about, you know, their their lists that have changed. Oh, I can't run my army the way I used to. Yeah. Um, but, th- I, I mean, that really does break up the stagnation of the game and reinvigorates things, so. Yeah. Oh, no, you're making me go outside my comfort zone. What yeah. am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, sometimes, so get and and don't get me wrong. Hey, I've I've lost entire armies. I know. It's, it's, it's stink. Um, you know, oh, wait, I can't just not run my army the way I ran it. Wait, it yeah. doesn't exist anymore? Or that doesn't, like, my army fundamentally doesn't work anymore. That's a problem. Um, I get that. And, th- and that is painful. But in order, you know, sort of for the greater good in the game to keep maturing, you know, got to do different things. And it, it is, yeah. yeah, and we as players need to play the game in different ways um, so we can, as you say, make constructive, um, you know, comments and, you know, provide feedback that, you know, Alessio and people at Warlord can use to, you know, come up with a second edition or to, you know, come out with some new, new bonus rules and campaign books coming out. So, yeah. Yeah, well, like, like after, after Moab, I, um, I did up a bit of a, you know, this was the tournament. This is what was very positive about the tournament. This was potentially, you know, some areas of improvement using the evidence of however many games we had over that two days mm-hmm. um, and then sent it off to him and, and sort of went, there you go. Here's some evidence from a tournament. And I'd highly encourage all tournament organisers out there that at the end of their tournaments if they found something which was really, you know, an example might be the recce rules. If you found people consistently getting frustrated or consistently having a problem with recce and you mm-hmm. could actually point at the evidence of that, then that's something that the guys who who um, create and maintain our our wonderful game would be interested, I think, to hear. We, we just don't wa- – I don't think they want to see a, a mad rant, Facebook, smashing keys, I'm really angry, this all sucks, the world is terrible, post because they go, yeah, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Well, on that, if you're going to offer feedback – also, let them know what actually worked as well, mm-hmm. what works really exactly. well, because then they know what not to change. Most definitely, it's got to be, true. you've got to structure your feedback to such things that this is really good, this worked really well, this is areas that didn't work so well, you know, and these are potential solutions, or this is what the guys were talking about would be a good solution. Uh, things like the recce rule, you know, uh, it keeps popping up again and again, and the latest, one of the, the erratas that came out recently where it was like, you know, um, a, a unit on ambush cannot activate when a vehicle wreckies because it's neither a run nor a advance move. And it's like, to me, that seems really odd. And if people find they just cannot kill wrecky vehicles in tournaments, that's something you could possibly look at and say, well, maybe we could remove that or, you know, this, this prevented people from having fun. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. Go ahead. Yep. Well, while we're talking about uh, different ways to run tournaments and that, do you mind if I spruik a couple upcoming tournaments? I thought you'd never ask, my man. Please go <laughs> ahead. All right. So P. Beckus over in Western Australia is actually running the third annual Western Australian Bolt Action GT. Nice. So on the, on the 21st of February at Perth Military Gaming Group in Melville, there's 20 spots available. It's $10 entry, and players actually have to bring three lists, a 500-point, 600-point, and a 1250-point list. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's so that's cool. all the information we've got so far, but yeah, that sounds quite interesting. So I'm assuming there, yeah, you're going to be run, 
running those three different lists over the day. That's sensational. So you, you sort of escalate as you go. That's awesome. I love the idea of that. And the fact that this will be the third GT, I know we constantly talk about this, that, and the other Australian scene. Um, for international listeners um, who may not have picked up when we talked to uh, Terence in the you know northern area of Australia earlier, P-Beck is, um runs sort of a lot of events on the west. I know there's he's got a strong gaming group around them. Lots of tournaments, lots of events, lots of people playing. Um, Terence likewise does things more north and his group. I know he's not alone. I know there's a lot of things being run up there as well. Um, when we sort of talk about the great Australian scene, um, I know that we are often blinkered by the fact that we're talking about sort of Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Canberra, which Melbourne and Sydney are the largest cities in Australia, but it definitely doesn't mean that there aren't other large cities. You have cities like Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth and so many other places where bolt action are being played where there's strong scenes. Yeah, we need to be inclusive. So I'm glad you brought that event up. Um, and speaking of uh, people in the region, was there another event you want to talk about? Yeah, there's also another tournament on that same weekend, so the 21st and 22nd of February. But it's actually in New Zealand, in Auckland. It's called Battle Cry. It's a big part of a big convention there. And that's a 1,000-point list, uh, five-game week uh, tournament. And talk to Dave Mulder on the group, or you can just uh, look up Battle Cry. So that's looking like a good one. Um, unfortunately, I won't be able to afford to fly back to Auckland for that one, but I'd like uh, to bummer. go probably the year after. Surely you've got enough frequent flyer points. Come on, you've gone everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's quite an emerging scene starting up in Auckland now. They're getting a fair few players going. So, yeah, they're a good bunch of guys when I was over there. That's awesome. So. So, yeah, get on that if you're in the area or if you want to take a trip. Auckland's a pretty nice city. New Zealand's pretty good this time of year. I have to say, Auckland is a great city to visit. I haven't been in a little while, but oh, I'd love to go back. So beautiful. Yeah. There's uh, Have you guys ever heard the uh, – there's a joke about New Zealand. Anyone where there's um, – this guy goes to a church in New York City, and there's a payphone in the corner, and it says, you know, Direct line to God. Must spend twenty thousand dollars. It's like wow, that's that's a lot of money. Uh, I can't I can't do that. Goes to L.A., goes to a church. Same thing. Same phone, except it's eighteen thousand dollars. He's like, ah, oh, well, that's a little bit cheaper. Still can't afford to do that. Um, travels around the world. Everywhere he goes, he sees this phone in churches everywhere. And it seems to go up and down in price, but it's always expensive. And then finally he ends up in Australia, and he goes to a church, and it's only $7,000. He's like, oh, that, that's, uh, I still can't afford to do that. So then he goes to New Zealand, goes to a church, and 25 cents to make the call. He's like, turns to the uh, pastor, you know, why is it so cheap here? And the pastor turns to him and says, oh, don't you know it's just a local call? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's uh, it's it just talks about yeah you know, just you know one of those things. There's a reason Peter Jackson filmed all of the Hobbit movies down there. It's gorgeous. It's sensationally oh, yeah. gorgeous. Yes, yeah, so he just had nothing. to extend. So, sorry, I was just going to say, and he had to extend them into a three part series for like the Hobbit. It's like, oh no, I've got to make three movies, not just one. <laughs> I still actually haven't seen them. Uh, I'm maybe the only <laughs> one who hasn't. But New, New Zealand is just so beautiful. So I tell all my mates here in Australia who now live in Australia, who are from New Zealand. 
Who <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keeps telling me how beautiful New Zealand is, but then they, they're here in Australia. All right. Yeah, there's that. There's that. Hey, don't um, get me wrong. Australia's beautiful too. I live here. So, yeah. There are parts. Um, Brad, are we going to talk about your event? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Um, well, I might just throw up there that we've been discussing a few things and um, prize support has always been, you know, something that's been very strong in the community. Um, particularly, you know, we've got a whole bunch of sponsors coming on board and really supporting the, the community. But I thought maybe we might do something a little bit different for Brad's event. And that is that there's a lot of uh, new people who are going to be going to Brad's event who perhaps are, are madly um, putting together their first bolt action armies or their first miniatures, perhaps have not done miniature painting they are, before. They're literally doing, there is at least four people who are powering through their first armies to get them ready for February. I've been getting um, pictures from folks um, as they've been whipping things together, as they've been getting models in mm. the mail, and yeah, people are feverishly painting. So Does what, your what fifth we've... army count? <laughs> what <are> you... No. <laughs> Oh, are nah. you talking? You're making jokes about people painting my armies. No, I'm talking about I'm, I'm painting up my own fifth army. Oh for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but what we've what we've decided oh, to do is um, just to, I guess, in honour of of all the new players coming to the scene and, and painting up their first bold action armies, is we're going to offer the tiger that I spoke about earlier in the episode. Um, so exciting! It's going to be the, the pictures. It's going to be the picture when this episode drops. By the way, so pay attention. Yeah, uh, take a look at the show notes on boltsaction.net, and you will see pictures of this gorgeous tiger. The tigers a it's a panzer. A, a, sorry, a tiger one with a zimmerit um, oh, yeah. around the based around uh, Michael Whitman's tiger. Uh, so the nineteen forty four ish era and uh, it's painted up with some bit of camo and everything else and it's a warlord games tiger it's a really nice piece of kit we're going to offer that up as prize support so um you know it would be up to the tournament organizer how the prizes are distributed but you're going to have a fully painted ready to go tiger one um as prize support and that'll you know uh maybe appeal to some people I have to say a big thank you to the person providing that that would be you patch thank you um (laughs) No, I mean, Patch painted this beautiful tank, maybe the epitome of his painting to date, and he's offered it up to us to give out as a prize. It's amazing. Patch, that's awesome. Thank you so much. It's such a generous gift. Um, okay, if, we are, if, yeah, people are going to be using, yeah. Look, um, Brad, if people, uh, if it's got a good reception there and people like, you know, having a, an option to, for a painted vehicle, I know, look, I know a lot of people like to paint their own stuff, including myself, yep. um, but there's a significant chunk of the hobby who would also like to have a fully painted vehicle straight up because they're you know they're still working on their skills or they don't enjoy the painting nearly as much and mm-hmm. you know they might commission people to paint their things and this is an option where you go well here is a fully painted vehicle if if people like that and there's some good feedback then i think it's something that we can offer more of as yeah. the uh tournaments continue through australia um so yeah guys give us some give us some feedback and the great thing about the tiger is it I mean, well, it's a German tank, and Germans are to make a Games Workshop analogy. They're sort of the Space Marines of the bolt action world. It seems as though I mean there was a lot of German hate for a while because people thought that other people had better rules. But man, it seems that I mean in the last tournament that I ran, more more than everyone, the most common army by a wide stretch was Germans. And everywhere I go, I seem to see Germans. So 
everyone's got a German army, it seems. Um, and if they don't, a lot of them have German models somewhere. So if you add, if you give someone a tiger, for example, either A, they already have an army to go with it, and it would just be a really cool centerpiece model to go with that, or B, um, you know, they wouldn't have to paint much more to have a thousand point tiger list. And man, I, I, I'll be honest, I love playing with my tiger. Um, it may not be the world's most effective tournament list, but God, is it fun to push around the table. And uh, people who don't fear that and run vehicles, <laughs> they need to think twice because that's a big yeah, gun. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So, I just no, want to point out, sorry, I just wanted to point out yep. that it's not, the tigers just aren't for Germans. You're forgetting the Hungarians. You can run them in a Hungarian True. list too, Fred. <laughs> yeah, very. No, you're 100 percent right, man. You could definitely do that. That is very true. Uh, yeah, but this time round, it just happened to be that I, you know, I got my hands on that Tiger One and and I painted it up, and it was the vehicle that at the time. But you know, if 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 people are interested in it and we do it again, there may be other types of vehicles, um, something unique or something different, perhaps like a, you know, maybe a, a French Char B One, for example, which may still be there at the end of the. Prizes and <laughs> some dude just at the end going, "Oh, really? That's all I've got? Oh, <laughs> yeah, really? I'm stuck with French? Oh, yeah." No, <laughs> but but yeah. what it can do is is really you know they they might look at that and go, you know what? That's just made me collect something. Uh, I'm going to yeah. go now and and collect the Japanese because that vehicle and you know it kicks you off into that area. So I hope I hope people can be interested in it and enjoy it. Definitely. Well, that's, yeah, that dude, again, incredibly generous. Um, before I forget, though, I also do want to say that we do have another major sponsor. I believe earlier in the episode, I talked that Laser Touch, the guys who made the custom um, pin markers for the LRDG and the Ghost Army podcast. If you guys want objective markers or pin markers with your favorite podcast logos, woohoo, or your favorite um, you know, units or na- uh, nations from World War II, guys, look up Laser Touch uh, in Australia. They also do custom carrying cases for bolt action. I just got one, and it fits my Sikh and my Africa Corps army perfectly. And for those of you who've been following online, my Africa Corps and my Sikh army are both, what, 60-plus infantry models plus tons of vehicles. And the fact that I literally can fit everything in and have leftover space for objectives and other things like that sensational so anyway um so laser touch has come on and so has the australian distributor of uh jtfm that's die waffen camera models uh campaign books and game logistics um look great guys um they also distribute osprey books and a number of other products um i know they also carry warlord and stuff like that Guys, I think, I mean, we have what? Warlord, we have Blitzkrieg, we now have, um, through campaign books, we also have Die Waffenkammer. We have so many great companies throwing incredible prizes on this event. I'm just blown away. Um, yeah, we have Laser Touch. Um, War and Peace is going to have... I'm pretty sure we're going to get some Rubicon kits as well. I mean, the prize support is unbelievable. Um, again, the price is $15, and I'm just shocked that I'm going to be giving away $40 and $50 boxes to every single person that walks in the door and then giving out prizes. 
Um, yeah, it's it's truly amazing. If you live in in or around Melbourne, come check us out. Um, if you need an army, we can probably loan you one. Um, that's February eighth. That's the Sunday um, at Games Lab uh, Games Laboratory in Melbourne. Um, yeah, look us up. Anyway, uh, player pack is on boltaction.net. Um, you can email me at whatisabattle at gmail.com if you have questions. Sorry, what? How many spots do we have left for that, Brad? I That's think a- you were saying we were getting pretty full, weren't we? Yeah, we're actually getting really full. Um, as of this morning, we had 15 players. Um, we're looking, we may have 16 by the time this podcast ends. Anthony's telling me his brother might come. Um, so if that's the case, I think the maximum we can run for this event will be 20 players. Um, I hate to turn people away. I might have to dig around and scrounge for tables and terrain. Because um, we certainly have the prize support um, to go larger. Uh, if so, that will make it the largest event for Melbourne by a wide margin. Um, yeah, look, we have a lot of really exciting stuff planned. So I'm hoping to see uh, all you guys there. And if look, if you can't make it to play, I know a few people can't. Um, but I know they are coming by just to hang out um, for a bit. Uh, we'll be upstairs at Games Laboratory. It's in Melbourne's Central Business District. It's easy to get to. Um, yeah, look us up. It's right off Elizabeth Street. Boom. And Dano, if you're listening, you can still fly over for this one too. That's right. I also want to throw out an invitation to, uh, you know, Craig Baxter. I know he's a new dad, but, you know, we always say Dano can come down. Or Judd, you know, any of our North American brothers, we will welcome you with open arms as always. Could you imagine if Mark Dog flew in? Oh, that would be amazing. Oh, that would, would be love so it. good. Would love it. Yeah. We should, we, we've got to get these Kickstarters going. Yeah, we really do. <laughs> I think the only people contributing to them would be us, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would all be good, but then they can do the reverse for us, right? And we all get a chance to go to North America and just play games. <laughs> Yeah. I was going to say, there's probably heaps of Americans willing to pay to get them out of the country. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely true. Uh, Good times. Yeah. All right. Well, um, is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up in this episode? I think um, that wraps us up, in my mind anyway. Um, anything uh, you'd like just, to just, No, just to reinforce what I was speaking about before and just play nice online. That's all. Just play nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to CanCon, and I'm sad that Patch isn't going to be able to join us. Absolutely. Yeah, sorry guys, but after, after there. this one, I should be good. Be there in spirit. That's right. Well, the next episode of the Ghost Army podcast, we are going to go back to having special guests. Um, we are definitely going to have Peter West on to talk about CanCon, and we're hoping perhaps to have P. Beckus on in the next episode or two to talk about how the GT went. Um, I'm sure there's going to be wrap-up after the February event as well. And yeah, man, there's we got tons, tons coming your way uh, in 2015. Uh, guys, regardless of where you are in the world, uh, we hope that you all have a fantastic, safe, and happy Australia Day. Um, that is CanCon weekend, the weekend coming up this weekend. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just uh, wish everyone the best. And if you would like to leave us any feedback, I know I said it at the beginning of the podcast, but please uh, contact us via theboltaction.net facebook page or via the forums on boltaction.net if you're listening to this podcast let's face it you're a geek why not proudly wear it like a badge of honor visit wargamingshirts.com and find your uniform 
Historical, sci-fi, board games, and other wargaming culture, we've got it all, and we're expanding the line every day. We even got a line for the ladies. Our shirts are high quality and come in a huge variety of designs, colors, and sizes. So check us out right now at wargamingshirts.com and expand your geek wardrobe. And for drove all night to the GTN Moab. Too cheap to pay for two nights at a hotel.